You are listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by a machinist. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson of Proteum Machining, and this week I am so happy to welcome Tim Paul. Welcome, Tim. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for reaching out. I'm I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm super pumped to have you. I, I know we've talked in the past on Instagram and stuff, but I'm glad we can make it work. Uh, yeah, but me too. for people who don't know who you are and what you do, give us the details. Yeah, so I'm Tim Paul. I work at Autodesk these days. A lot of people know me as One Ear Tim on Instagram. Um, I have one ear. My name's Tim. It's kind of pretty straightforward. Maybe the story will get there. So, you know, during the podcast, maybe it won't actually explain the name and all that. But um, so, what I do is that was that the question? What I do? So, uh, I've had a lot of different positions at Autodesk, but you know, to talk about what I'm doing now, and I'll kind of go backwards, I guess. Um, so I think my account, I have to look at my business card. My, my my title is something like technical account manager for Fusion 360 education. Um, it was a pretty natural kind of place for me to, to go. A lot of people are a little confused because I've had several other positions at Autodesk, which is honestly pretty common, uh, pretty typical of my career, to be honest. I move, move <laughs> around a lot. I probably... Uh, people that love me say I have like career ADD. Autodesk has by far been the the place I've been at the longest. February will be nine years. For me, it's always been a um, a chase of kind of more experiences and more knowledge. And not that I perfect something and want to move on, but I like I get pretty competent at something, and and I don't see like a ton of new stuff coming, new knowledge and and new experiences coming, and I kind of start looking for other things. And most most of them have been other things kind of find me, right? And I like to think because I leave a good impression, you know, when I meet people. And So what I do now is I help schools be awesome with Fusion, right? So I help students and educators and really the education community do more with Fusion. And lately my, my focus has been more manufacturing, which is great because I was – I was pretending to do less manufacturing stuff and more design and engineering stuff. And I'm, I'm a machinist. I've been machining since the late nineties. And, um, it's, it's been a pretty natural thing for me. I get, I get pretty stoked on watching people learn and, and find new things. And, and I like sharing kind of what I've learned over the years. So I've been pretty good at, you know, we have, we have a pretty interesting trade when it comes to, you know, teaching the next generation. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I think through my life experiences, I've been pretty good at like kind of getting that old guard to, to believe in me and invest in me. I think. Let's jump into it? that. Yeah. then. Um, yeah. Where did you start in manufacturing and how did you get to where you are now? Yeah. So I got into manufacturing. This is always like, you know, where do you, where do you really start? Right. <laughs> Take it as far back as you want. Yeah. When did you start getting that bug? Cause I know I've had guests on who, haven't been exper- or haven't experienced manufacturing until they're in their late teens or early adulthood. I had some that grew up in manufacturing households. You know, what was your first experience yeah. in manufacturing? So I'll, I'll share. I'll, I'll try not to 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 spend too much time on my youth, but I think it's important. You know, we're all a product of our past, right? And everything we're doing today is you know kind of lingers from something in our past. So, uh, yeah. So I, I grew up pretty lower 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 income family. My, my dad, you know, my dad's big family, kind of a trailer park kid, 
but I was fix everything yourself kind of family, right? My my grandfather had a little kind of ranch kind of thing, and we spent a lot of time over there. He had a big barn with welders in it, and basically every every rough farm fabrication kind of tools you could think of. You know, I came from a family that like built their own homes and you know stuff like that. Um, so I was always exposed to this kind of mentality of like, why pay someone to do it when you can do it? Better, sometimes better, sometimes just done, right? <laughs> and I think I learned how to weld when I was, so my dad, my dad, and my uncle basically invented these old, at the car dealerships, there were these ramps that cars drove up on to like get them up so people could see them. Their invention was basically the the ramp that kind of was like this, you know, kind of pointing up at the sky resting. And when you drove up, it kind of leveled off. And they, they did pretty good with that for like two years, but they were, uh, my dad might listen to this. I'll, I'll, I'll pull some punches, but they're pretty crappy business people. Right. And so they hired a sales guy that basically took the business from them. Um, so I was like kindergarten, first, second grade, kind of right in there. Um, oh, and wow. my uncle, my uncle's like, you know, put some MIG welder in my hand and, you know, and, and it was like, let's learn how to weld kid. I think I wanted to make a, a dirt bike stand or something like that. And um, I can tell you, man, that it was one of those life changing moments looking through a hood and seeing metal melt together, you know, by my, by my doing. Right. And then my family was pretty into like four wheel drive, you know, going, we're 45 minutes from the Rubicon Jeep trail. So you break a lot of things up there. So, you know, I was learning about axles and transmissions and gearing and stuff like that. So uh, I was always a mechanical person that wanted to fix things by something I designed. You know, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be an artist or an inventor, whatever the hell an inventor is, right? I remember I would like draw out like these flip out headlights that, you know, no, no. What was the invention? Oh, I had this invention because we were up four wheeling in the snow and the snow would pack in front of the headlights. I was like... I'm going to invent windshield wipers for your, for your headlights. <laughs> My dad's not the softest, softest guy. So he's like, that's stupid. Mercedes already does it. <laughs> um, and kind of on that same note, you know, his dad wasn't very soft either. So when I had said, I'd want to be an artist, he's like, that's stupid. You know, they have the, they have the term starving artist for a reason. Right. So I was kind of lost. And to be honest, I had, terrible, terrible experience with school. I was dyslexic. So bad that I, I used to write my name MIT, M-I-T instead of T-I-M. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. It was, and it was weird. I'd write it in the dirt, you know, cause I would practice and, um, and then I would look at it and damn it, I did it wrong again. I would try to do it again. It was like a, something that was hard to even explain, but with that comes like slow reading with slow reading comes, you know, getting behind in school. Right. And so I did just did pretty crappy in school. And then I, I was born with one ear. So luckily I was born a big tough kid with one ear, <clears throat> which is better than being a, a little tiny kid with one ear. So, so I got kicked out of several schools, to be honest, I, I would get in little fights and it always seemed like I was fighting with like the B PTA mom's, you know, kid or something like that. So, oh, uh, the worst target possible. Yeah, exactly. So, but they were always the nastiest kids that were making fun of me for, you know, having one ear or whatever. So anyways, I bounced around schools a bunch, a bunch, a bunch. 
And then I just always felt like, you know, I was going to be nothing. You know, I was going to, you know, I didn't feel like I had a very bright future and wasn't very confident in myself. And then I started, you know, getting good at sports. So I kind of found some confidence there. I'd be hanging out with a friend that have a bike problem with their bicycle and I'd fix their bicycle. And my friend's like, you're the smartest kid in the world. <laughs> and, um, so kind of fast forward, I got into high school and my goal in high school were girls, sports, um, and cars basically. Right. So I picked up, started racing mountain bikes and that's kind of that mountain bike thing is a very, very important part of my, my story when it comes to manufacturing. So I'll get to that in a second, but man, I took four years of metal shop. If you took three years of metal shop that accounted for one year of physical science. And so I thought I was outsmarting the system by taking three years to get rid of one year. Right. And, um, but my point with metal shop was I took four years of metal shop Our metal shop teacher was actually electronics teacher took over the program when the, the good metal shop teacher retired. And I remember being like, I want to learn how to TIG weld because I'm going to, I'm going to start a bike company someday. And, uh, and he's like, I don't know how to TIG weld, but here's a book, you know, and he hands me something that looks a lot like a machinery's handbook. And it was actually a military book from the late sixties about heliarc welding, you know? So, um, and anyways, I, I read it. I swear to you, I read it cover to cover. I've still have never read, the time I ever read a novel in my life, but I read this, you know, how to heliarc weld, which is all totally, 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 totally out, outdated. Right. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was literally like the Marine Corps manual for, for how to TIG weld or heliarc weld. It wasn't even called TIG weld back then, right? Anyways, through persistence, which is probably another kind of key part of my life, I figured it out. And and I taught my, my teacher how to TIG weld. And in reflection back on my life, not one freaking time did he say, hey, you're, he knew I had problems keeping my grades up to play football and all that. But not one single time did he say, hey, you're pretty good at this. You ever think about you know, manufacturing for a career? It wasn't even, a, like, it wasn't even an option. Right. You know, he would ask me, like, what are you planning on doing after high school? And I was like, be a professional mountain bike racer. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, anyways, that was kind of a big miss. And that's honestly part of the reason I'm so passionate about education, you know, manufacturing education now. And the reason I, yeah, I mean, I took a, my, my coming to the education team wasn't a career step forward. Right. I know some people all over the country, but especially at Autodesk, you have a lot, you have people that are like care, care a lot about, you know, the work and you have other people that care more about their career path. Right. I care more about the work. So anyways, I got out of high school and then I started racing mountain bikes, uh, trying to do that as for a living, worked at a bike shop, became service manager at a bike shop, started a bike shop for that guy. And I think it became pretty clear. I was a better mechanic than I was a racer. I mean, I was a respectable, you know, racer, but I, you know, I knocked myself out a bunch of times. I was getting hurt oh, a bunch, uh, like a bunch of times. And at one point I realized I was either going to die and I was kind of willing to accept that or there's no like path to money. Right. So I ended up becoming a mechanic for one of the, one of the fastest women that's ever raced a bicycle. 
first woman inducted in the bicycle hall of fame. And, um, someone noticed that, you know, I was very particular and very, you know, always trying to do better than everybody else and always, you know, wanted to be more prepared. And so anyways, I was her mountain bike mechanic, traveled the world with her. I raced kind of the national stuff in America and then, and then was her world cup mechanic. And that exposed me to, yeah, I'm kind of condensing the story, even though it doesn't sound like I'm condensing it, but, <laughs> um, that exposed me to, basically went to a bicycle company was, was meeting with the owner and he was tied up in a meeting. So I wandered through the shop and this was life changing moment right here, you know, kind of welding metal together when I was a kid was a life changing moment. This was maybe the most life changing moment I, I had. I basically came around the corner and I saw old, pretty crappy Haas EC400, arguably maybe one of the worst Haas machines made. I hope, I hope not too many <laughs> Haas people are, are listening, but the new EC400 is pretty good, by the way. But the old one was not good, but it was machining these pretty rad mountain bike swing arm parts. And, uh, and at the time, so set the time for this, this is, let's say nineteen. 1997, right around there. I was just turned 20 years old, traveling my ass off for, um, you know, being a mountain bike mechanic, just really living like a poor racer, right? Not getting paid anything to do anything, working my ass off. And I think I had a girlfriend that was probably wanting to think about her future. And so I started thinking about my future. And, um, and man, I just remember walking up and just, just looking through the window of this machine. And it was like, my life just changed. And like, it was one of those, where do you, it was one of those moments where I was like, damn it, I think my life just changed. And then I That's so cool. Yeah. To like was, have that, those, it, it seems really great for you that you have these crystallized moments that you can look back on. Like I know a lot of us, but life is just this meandering path and it's like, it's kind of hard to see where those forks in the road are. So it must be really nice to look back and be like, Oh, that was the day that changed my life. Yeah, it was, it was one of those like welding as a kid. I didn't realize, you know, I, didn't, I was just a dumb kid. This was one of those like, damn it. I, I think I'm pretty obsessive about things. You know, I know you ask a lot of people like, what are you researching? I was like, have to hope it doesn't have to be one thing right because oh definitely not i'm super obsessive about things um and so that's basically what happened but this is 1997 before before you just pull out your phone and research you know everything there is to know about machining and there definitely wasn't no you know john saunders or you know all these amazing resources for people to to learn about machining so from there, I went to Europe, traveled Europe, and all I could think about was, and I've always looked at parts because I took some metal shop. I knew how things were made, but I always was like, holy crap. 3D machining was like, it's definitely around, but it wasn't a common common thing back then. And this company I was working for was like 3D machining these cool yokes, you know, for the bicycle swing arms. And I was like, holy shit. So 1996, 7, 8, 9 was a very, very innovative time for downhill i raced downhill mountain bikes and i was never never a good peddler so pointing downhill was was a better better <laughs> option for me but i was right in kind of the middle of what a lot of people would argue was the most innovative time in mountain biking and a ton of the people that were innovating at that time were like an aerospace machine shop that things kind of 
if you follow your machining history in the in the later 90s, aerospace machining kind of had a dip because a lot of military bases were getting closed. And so a lot of these guys were like, well, I ride mountain bikes. I'm going to make some rad stuff for that. And, and me wanting to be an artist when I was a kid, I was always looking at the artistic kind of perspective, but also the, the you know, how things were made and kind of I worked with a lot of companies on developing their bikes. Not a lot or a couple that this lady worked for. And that's what I was going down to meet this company. You know, I want to talk to the, you know, I was meeting to talk to the owner about some changes they were going to make to their bike. And I literally, all I could think about while I was in Europe was, was how do I be, become a machinist? Um, and so the guy that I was talking to in the shop, I was like, this is amazing. How did you do what you do? Tell me, tell me about it, which is another kind of trend in my life that I've later realized is pretty important to me. I've always been like, honestly, it's kind of your thing too, right? I and mean, that's what your whole show's about. Exactly. I was always like, tell me how you got where, what you're doing right now. I want to hear the whole damn thing. Can I take you to lunch? And so he was a mechanical engineer. I found out years later, he, he was an engineer. You know, I say that with like rabbit ears <laughs> because uh, he didn't quite get through school. He took the path. I mean, he told me he was a mechanical engineer. And so that's where I was like, damn, I guess I got to be a mechanical engineer. School wasn't really my jam, but that's that's my thing. I'm going to be a mechanical engineer now. And I went to Europe, came back, and I swear to you, I came back, and there was one foot pile of mail waiting for me when I got back from, being, from traveling, right? And on the very top was a Sierra College, our local. So I'm from Northern California, a suburb of Sacramento. And Sierra College was the local community college. And I flipped, 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 flipped through it. I was looking for engineering and machining. Those are two things I was looking for. And all I found was the only thing that was available coming up was, um, G it was a G code class. And the prerequisites were like some machining, manual machining, and then trigonometry. And I don't know how good your memory is, but I was just telling you, I wasn't very good at school. Yeah. So, yeah. How did your did your dyslexia also follow you into math? Were you trans transposing numbers, or was it just letters? I know some people have both. Some people yeah. have one or the other. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. So, I have a pretty strong math brain. When all you're doing is trying to get through school, you literally take whatever the easiest path through school is. Right. I don't share it with a ton of people. I'm. I was in special ed in elementary school, which back then special ed was like, you know, kids with Down syndrome and, you know, gnarly, gnarly stuff. Um, and really they put me there because they didn't know what else to do with me. I was getting fights and getting kicked out of school. And well, at the time, like I never learned multiplications in school, never learned division, fractions, any of that stuff, because they were, you know, really just trying to, they were using me to help wipe kids' mouths and, you know, help them go to the bathroom and stuff like that. So... I residually picked up multiplication and stuff, you know, later in life. Um, but so direct answer to your question is, no, I didn't transpose numbers. I'm still scared shitless is what I was going to say. Um, transposing numbers. I've, I've never crashed. I'll tell you about a crash maybe later in the episode, but I, I've always been able to say I've never crashed a machine until working at Autodesk. I had a probe issue, but I'll hopefully talk oh, no. later, but and it was because I'm so obsessive about, I know I'm dyslexic, so you, you're never not dyslexic anymore. You just learn how to deal with it, right? 
So with numbers, I never naturally transpose them like I, like I did with, with letters, but so getting back to the Sierra college. So trigonometry was one of the prerequisites. So I called my brother, who's like a Mensa member, which is like, if you know what that is, it's like super dorks. Sorry, (laughs) sorry for any Mensa members listening, but it's a special kind of super dork. It's people with, you know, genius IQs that cared enough to like, go take a proctored IQ test and then join, you know, they pay membership to be a super dorks. So my brother's one of those guys, a couple master's degrees, super, super dork, works in DC at the Pentagon and stuff like that. And I was like, what's, what's trigonometry? And he, he says, you're an idiot. What are you doing? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so anyways, he tells me about a website his friend started. It was like math.com or something like that. It's a self-study kind of thing. I studied my ass off for four hours a night, every night after work. And I went and took a math assessment test at Sierra College and and I got basically passed. I taught myself up through trigonometry. I'm not saying that to be any kind of hero, but when you kind of pick my life apart, I think the one thing that you'll find is like I'm pretty persistent and pretty like obsessive about things. So I showed up to the G code class and I think there was only one other person that actually knew what trig was, let alone like could remember all the trig functions and stuff. So I was I was pretty disheartened by that. Yeah, all that time. Oh all my that freaking time, yeah. So I took the trig class. I was the super dork in class, finished quick, and then teacher would have me help other people. And then um, about halfway through the class, the teacher was like, Tim, you're great at this. What, what, are, you, what are you doing? It's like, well, I took the bike industry because I didn't want to be distracted by it because I'm going to be a machinist or an engineer. And I took a job as a mechanic at a Jeep dealership. I duped them into thinking I was mechanical enough to uh, to be a mechanic. Um, and he was like, engineer or machinist? That's interesting. Tell me more. And I was like, basically told him my story. And he said, do you really love math? And I was like, no. Goodbye <laughs> at it. But like, I kind of told him my story. And he's like, engineering is going to be a... Oh, sorry to cuss again. He said, engineering is going to be a bitch. Uh, <laughs> and this is this like kind of old German guy telling me this. So put a heavy German accent on that. And, um, and he said, you know, you should look into how much machines are making. They're making good money. Engineers, unless you go to a good engineering school, often engineers kind of struggle. He told me, you know, talk to some people that have graduated from Sac State, you know, come kind of my local you know, college. And so right at that same time, like within a day, I was helping this other kind of older guy. I actually think he listens to this. So I'll, I'll be extra nice. <laughs> but he, he was, he worked at a local machine shop and he was, he's kind of just struggling with the G code stuff. He wanted to kind of expand his career. So he was taking this G code class and he was kind of struggling, not terrible, but, um, my the teacher was like hey go help go help that guy so i was helping him and he's like damn you're good at this um what what are you doing where do you work and i was like oh i work at the jeep dealership (laughs) (laughs) and he was like what the hell i'm like yeah i'm gonna do this i want to be a machinist or an engineer and he was like you want to be a machinist we're hiring i'll get you a job tomorrow and i was like you're kidding this is night school remember He's like, yeah, I'll talk to the boss tomorrow. So 
the next day working at the car dealership and I'm helping, you know, this guy that specializes in transmissions. And he's like, you're too smart for this, man. What, what are you, what are you working at the car dealership for? And I'm not, I'm not personally dogging, you know, car mechanics, but a lot of them are pretty salty and, and hate their jobs. And he was one of them. So I was like, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to school. I'm, I'm going to be a machinist. And he's like, you want to be a machinist? My best friend, my neighbor, my best friend manages a machine shop. I'll get you a job tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, well, I, I just told the same thing to another guy. <laughs> and he was like, get the hell out of here. And so he goes to lunch, comes back, and he's like, I got you an interview tomorrow. I'll call in sick and go go to this interview. So I go to school that night, and this guy that I was helping, he's like, I got you an interview tomorrow at noon. You're going to have to call in sick or whatever you got to do to be here. <laughs> so my other interview was at one. Oh my god! And I was like, "Oh, this is a problem." Being on time is important to me. And uh, long story short, it ended up being the same damn place, same damn guy. No, uh, yeah. Oh and my god! What a, a coincidence! I'm not a religious person, but it's one of those moments where, like, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. This feels like divine intervention right there. Yeah. So. I go in there and the owner of the place wants to talk to me. And I, you know, I, man, I obsess about my, my applications, my resumes, all that stuff. I'm just a pretty obsessive person when it comes to all that stuff. And I wanted, here was the deal. I was still racing mountain bikes. I wasn't working in the industry, but I wanted to uh, do one more year of the nationals. And so I, what I, what I was hoping to ask of the machine shop is I'll work any time you want as much overtime as you want. I just need these dates off to go race. And back then you used to a national race, like started practice on Tuesday and raced on Saturday and Sunday. So it was a, it was a big ask. Um, and so the owner sees this and he's, he's a bicycle person. Actually, they have a pretty famous coupler that helps you take bikes apart and put them back together, put them in like luggage. And anyway, long story short, he he gives me the thing I asked for, gives me a job there. Ended up being kind of a sweatshop, and I didn't realize any hours you want. It was seventy two hours a week. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, it was it was um, Monday through Friday, twelve hours a day, Monday through Friday, eight to ten on Saturday. Jeez, and that doesn't leave a lot of time to train, right? Um, so I was riding my road bike back and forth to to work and whatever. That year was a rough one for me. I was getting hurt a lot, probably because I wasn't training properly. And I was trying to make up for, you know, any lack of training for just pure grit and determination. And that usually ends up putting you on the ground. Um, so anyways, the job there was pretty terrible. It's a lot of what people talk about, you know, terrible life of a machinist. It was, you know, dirty and grungy and which I could care less about, to be honest. I, you know, I grew up, yeah, I didn't care anything about that. But what it was, was it was like going to a master's class in machining. They had like 14 CNC machine mills. And the new guy started on this thing. Uh, I always forget the name of it. It's like Karasaki from 1902, basically. It was CNC, so it was, it was from like the early '80s. It had curtains; or they they kind of made shower curtains for it because cool, oh, it would go everywhere. <laughs> um, the one machine would cut phenolic, and then cast iron, and then phenolic. Oh, gross! And 
And so Cast Iron Phenolic has a way of just, just getting past into the sump. And the sump was this cast iron sump. And you had to remove this cover once it got all plugged up. And we called it cleaning the ass out of an elephant. Because it smelled <laughs> smelled about like that. And then you had this hole that was like, I don't know, 10 inches by 10 inches that you had to reach your arm up to your armpit. Pull out this smelled like elephant poop. It feels like an Ace Ventura yeah, you know, totally. bit or something. <laughs> 100%. But I did everything with a smile. I tried to do it better than anybody else in the shop. And then next thing you know, I'm kind of being moved up, you know, to the next newer machine, the next newer machine. Within just a few months, I was I was mentoring under this genius Vietnamese guy named Lock Two that could read G-code faster than I could read the English language, right? He was just one of those one of those gifted guys that just saw things and so I mentored under him on newer machine, like a couple year old machine, and that's kind of how their shop was laid out. It was like whenever they got a new machine, they always bought two at a time, and they would just put them you know the next row closer to the the programming office, just kind of kept going that way. but on those machines, we basically only did. So the old machines were literally running two jobs. They've been running those two jobs for the last, you know, 30 years. And then the new machines ran, you know, one part, two parts, one part, two parts. So it was really like this kind of neat master's class in machining from everything from some a machine that ran two two jobs its entire life for, you know, decades to one part, two part, one part, two part. So and then when you work in 72 hours a week, you're exposed to a lot of stuff. And then I broke my femur racing mountain bikes. Um, and I think I was back to work a week, week and a half after I broke my femur. But I told Whoa. him, like, I can't work 72 hours a week. I can't I can't stand. I got to hobble around. And they were like, great, we're backed up in the inspection room. Another super important kind of pivot in my life, right? So super smart, you know, QC guy was in there. First thing, it was like, here's all our gauge pins. Make sure they're all deburred. And here's an air gauge. Inspect them all, right? And this was a shop that's been around for 30 years. So it was like, they had a lot of damn pin gauges. But it was it was like, you know, I, I talked to younger machinists, it seems like more, that would absolutely bitch and complain about that job. And I was like, freaking amazing. Nobody else in the shop gets to play with this air gauge, right? <laughs> a lot of people don't know what an air gauge is. It's a super crazy accurate way to measure things, right? Yeah, um, they're incredible. Yeah. It feels like magic. magic. Yeah. <laughs> jinx, yeah. jinx, right? <laughs> uh, literally feels like magic. Um, and then I got to use the CMM back when, you know, before they had DNC CMMs. You know, all these like Cadillac gauges, you know, all these just, I was exposed to a lot of, you know, QC stuff that a lot of people don't normally get exposed to. Got a good relationship with the QC guy. So then when I went back out to the shop to machine stuff, instead of him coming out and basically looking for reasons to, to deny my parts or reject my parts, because he saw that I was I actually gave a shit. He saw, you know, that I really, really cared about details. He looked at my parts as how can he how can he pass them right how can he accept them? I swear to you, it was it was real. 
he would come out and instead of like just hanging a tag on it and put it on the reject shelf, he would come out to me and be like, Hey, this is what I found. We would talk, you know, through the, you know, some GDT. So I was getting exposed to GDT all like six months into my career. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. That, that's so formative. I, I know I've said it a million times on the show, but my last job, they started me out in QC. Like it was actually the, the hiring agency they were using lied to me and said, Oh, they're looking for a fusion programmer. And then I get there and they're like, well, no, we need somebody in inspection or somebody to push buttons. And I'm like, all right, inspection. It is cool. Um, But I always say like, I learned more about being a good machinist in inspection than I ever did on the floor. And like, don't get me wrong. It was mind numbing at sometimes like inspecting a lot of parts kind of sucks sometimes, but you learn so much about how, you can screw up like how many how many ways you can screw up a part totally and hopefully you learned like yeah how many ways you could screw up a part um i stumbled across like conflicting gdnt stuff fairly often like this is nonsensical right and i had this dude that had been doing it since the dinosaur days that were like oh yeah 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 he got all excited like let's look at this and he was even had enough charisma to be like we can't go back to to Aerojet, you know, uh, you know, a huge rocket company, and tell them you guys are idiots. I'm just a a dude with an associate's degree that I'm going to tell this guy with a PhD that you're an idiot. So he realized, like, he kind of gave me some hints, and I think I had enough like customer service background working at the bike shop and stuff to kind of know not to treat people that way. But so many machine shops that I've met, machine shop owners and stuff, would go back to the customer, and be like, you're an idiot. You know, right? Um, and just get excited that they they could prove somebody that they're an idiot. And so he he kind of taught me like there's a lot better way to go about you know coming back and be like, hey, what's your what's your intent? That's what he would ask. What's your intent with this? Can I suggest this? That's great. And often it would be like, what's your intent? Can I suggest this? And it would actually be less expensive. And so that was actually another very important thing I learned, you know, if I'm documenting these important kind of things I learned, that was one of them was have a relationship with the customer, understand their intent and try to help them find a better way to make their stuff that's less expensive and maybe even better quality. Right. So at that shop, anyways, I learned that that was, that was a bunch of key things. There's a very interesting social experiment kind of lessons when, you have a shop full of, let's say, 30, 40 machinists that are all working 72 hours a week. Every guy, it seemed like, in there had a story about, you know, basically you work 72 hours a week. All you have time to do is go grab a drink at the bar before you go home. Now, all I was worrying about was getting some cardio so I can actually pedal a bicycle. Um, <laughs> but they would go to the bar, you know, for a couple hours, go home, wake up, repeat like Groundhog's Day. And then they would tell me how they're, you know, they met the first wife because they knocked her up, you know, after meeting her at the bar. And then they had a baby, so she couldn't work. So he worked. So he basically got dependent on that 72, 72 hours a week. That's 32 hours a week of overtime, some double time in there. Right. You know, for a lot of these blue collar guys, including me, I felt like I was rich. I felt like I was rich. And so they get dependent on this overtime and uh, their family gets dependent on this overtime. I know we're taking all kinds of tangents, but I think it's an important part of our, like the industry story. Um, 
And then their wife gets pretty fed up with them not being there to help change diapers or soccer practice, you know, any, any of that stuff. And then she starts, you know, spending a lot of time with the, the neighbor guy because he's home at four or whatever the story is. And they get to, oh, no, no. And then often what would happen is they would quit this shop because they're like, my wife's going to leave me. I need to go get a 40-hour week job. And these guys are going to pay me $2 more an hour. And the owner, this is that social experiment thing. And I'm, if I was blessed with one thing, it's op- the power of observation, right? And actually wanting to like really understand people's stories. So I'm sitting back just observing all this as this dumb, you know, 20-ish year old kid. Um, and these, the owner, you know, the owner would always tell me like, you always leave a door open for people to come back, put that in my little journal. Right. Um, (laughs) and, and then sure enough, four five, six months later, these guys are back because they're like, Oh, I need to make 32 hours a a week overtime to support, you know, this damn family that I have. And, um, and the next thing you know, they're getting divorced because their wife, you know, started cheating on them or whatever, whatever the weird story was. But it was this really interesting. I remember like, man, if I ever run a shop, never, never doing that. So I break my femur. I'm really struggling to work full, full time and their full time is at least 70 hours a week. Um, and I'm getting cankles. I don't know if you know what cankles are. Yeah, it's. Typically, like the older ladies, when they wear socks, they get like oh, this okay. pooch above their, their <laughs> sock. Um, yeah. So I'm getting cankles bad at night. And I'm just, my leg is terribly sore every night. And uh, now take a left turn or right turn or whatever. When I was racing mountain bikes, I was, got pretty good at uh, rebuilding suspension and tuning suspension. And I started doing this guy that had a go-kart company. And made a lot of people said like the Ferrari of shifter carts. And he was a local guy and he had always been, I used to rebuild a suspension on his mountain bike and he just liked me. He liked how detailed I was. And he was always like, man, I need to get you one of these shifter carts. And I was like, no, you don't. No, that sounds like a distraction to me. I'm going to be an engineer, a machinist or, or a professional mountain bike racer. Right. Yeah. Well, the last thing you needed is another way to get hurt too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't have a great sense of self-preservation, which explains why I'm recovering from two broken ankles at 46 years old. But So the, the getting hurt wasn't even on my radar. Um, but I was having a hard time pedaling a mountain bike, and uh, I connected with him to do something to a suspension. He's like, time to get on a go-kart. I'm like, yeah, I think my bike days are coming to an end. I do need that next thing. So, yeah, I'll, I met him out at the go-kart track. I was still on crutches. I forgot that. I was still on crutches. And uh, he and uh, one of his guys helped me. It was a private test day. He and one of his guys had to help me to get into this cart because they're, it's a situation getting in and out of these things. And um, he, uh, it was like, he just, he just hooked up heroin into my, my, my veins, man. I quit three days later. I quit the machine shop three days later and went to work at this go-kart shop. No way. Yeah. As like the I don't know, production manager, some dumb title, but they basically made every one of these go-kart chassis like they were, uh, you know, a one-off fabricated part and they were getting real busy because they were, he used to build drag race chassis, race car chassis, did some stuff for John Forrest. He was a, I still say today, and I've been exposed to a lot of 
talented people. He's the most talented fabricator I've ever met in my life. Oh, wow. How cool. Yeah. And, but he fabricated, he fabricated all these chassis, right? I say that with the, the quote bunny ears, um, instead of making them like a production thing. And he couldn't keep up with, you know, he's making like one chassis every day and a half. And he was like, yeah, it'd be awesome. You know, machining, you know, you know, I was, I was starting to design stuff while I was at Sierra college. I bought a seat of a student version of SolidWorks. That's actually one of those, like write that in my journal as a pivotal time in my life. Um, so anyways, left machining kind of to go be as, you know, manufacturing manager or some dumb title. But the, uh, the goal was to get two chassis made a day. So one, basically a chassis in a day and a half to two chassis a day was his goal. And, uh, I'll shorten that story up, but basically we got to where we were doing uh, like six to eight chassis a day. Whoa. Um, yeah, basically. And it sounds like, you know, that's braggadocious or whatever, but that's kind of how I've thought through racing in my life and everything goes back to racing, right? Running a machine shop, you could, you know, there's a systematic way to think about how to get faster. Well, there's also, you could apply that to a machine shop. You could apply that to almost anything in your life. Um, so what so was that was, attributed to? Was that just better jigs and fixtures and templated yeah, it was literally you know, like cuts start, and stuff like that? Yeah, the first thing was like start with what's the biggest bottleneck? Oh, bending tubes. Uh, you know, JD Square Bender, that's what he had. That's what he bent every single tube on the chassis. Like it, like he, like he was starting from scratch and he wouldn't bend Jeez. two at a t- you know, he wouldn't bend like get it set up and bend six. He would right. bend one, put a new die in, bend the other, you know, whatever. Oh goodness. And I, I found a guy in Sacramento. He actually a very popular tube bender with the CNC, you know, his old pines CNC bender. I went over and sat on him for a day. He made stuff for all the big like motocross exhaust companies and, um, He's like, yeah, easy. And I was like, how accurate can it be? Because we basically hand fit every one of these tubes like it's, you know, a one-off thing. And and he was like, you do this, give it, give me a basically a bend fixture, and I'll make sure that thing drops in there. So it was like, bam, that was a huge one. That was a huge one. And then he used to hand fit all the tubes with the die grind. You know, you'd miter it, but then you'd die grind it, right? But it used to be like put it in a bridge port, you know, put an angle finder on there, you know, run an arbor down. You know, and then that was close enough to then hand find it with a hand, hand finish it with a hand fit it with a die grinder. And so, the, yeah, then I made a bunch of fixtures to like put this fixture, touch in here, you know, miter, miter, miter it. And then the fit was better. Like everything was better. So instead of the, the welder also being a fitter, he, he was just a welder. We hired a couple guys. So it's not like we did that with nobody. One of my buddies, you know, he's kind of, I drug him along from the bicycle industries, carding, ended up working at another pretty popular bike company in Sacramento. Bought him to, brought him to a motorcycle shop, brought him to, into the industry. Now he's a productive, you know, machinist, five axis, you know, doing all kinds of awesome stuff. So, you know, that was one of those guys like, yeah, we just get along and he has the right brain for it. So anyways, that was, um, super fun. It was super fun to be a part of that industry you know, I got to race, you know, as part of the deal was like, I got to race as part of working there. And that's all I, that's all I actually cared about. It was like, I, I remember right. agreeing to work there without agreeing to how much I was going to get paid. 
Oh goodness. <laughs> I, he agreed. He agreed that I'd have a team chassis, you know, team cart. Uh, <laughs> oh, so, man. so this I, is like early two thousands then. Yeah. Let's say 2000, almost 2001, right around 2001. Okay. So I wasn't at that other machine shop very long at all. Let's say a year and a half. Stopped racing mountain bikes, started working at this place. And again, kind of a trend in my life is like 180%, just like poured myself into it. I remember being at the shop until 3 a.m. Um, to be back at like 7 or 8 a.m. Um, it was just racers or like drug addicts, basically. And so we were surrounded by those people. You know, there was a few guys that I really buddied up with. So we would bust our ass all day and then and then prep our carts to go practice and race. And just a cool, it was a cool thing. Um, so then I got back into machine from there. Uh, they were terrible business owners. Not, they're terrible at running their business. That's, that's what I want to be clear on that. And so then I went and just worked it. It basically ran some little guy's machine shop. They used to make parts for the go-kart shop. I mean, it got to where I was like programming this stuff that he was going to make for us. Um, and then he was growing. So he talked me into coming to work for him. And that was cool because that little environment, I think a lot of younger machinists, if any, I'm sure a lot of them are listening. There's one trend that is, you know, I, I don't definitely don't stake my, you know, any flag in the ground as, you know, meeting some benchmark of success, but I've had a lot of success. And I think if any young machinists, like, I think a lot of people want the big job with, uh, you know, great benefits and all that. I think just invest, you know, sometimes taking a less kind of a crappier job that, you know, exposes you to more knowledge. Think about it as an investment in, in yourself and your future, right? So that's that's what I totally. saw. It was like, this dude doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, sometimes uh, learning what not to do is equally as important, if not more important, than learning what works. Yeah, 100%. And and really, the, the opportunity there was, I was going to be the dude. I was going to be the dude responsible for doing everything this guy does. And I was like, yes. Um, I've said from like back in my bike shop days, the reason I became the world cup mechanic was, you know, anything that looks like an opportunity, I'll entertain it. And for me, an opportunity is, is like more knowledge, better network of people to kind of get to know money. The older I got having a kid and stuff like that, money becomes a bigger factor. But back then it was like knowledge, knowledge and a network of people. You know, that, that was kind of what I was chasing. It was like, you know, will I get to know more people in the industry? Will I be exposed? Will I harder challenges? And that's really what I found with this this next shop was was um I was gonna be the dude. You know, he was like a tech guy that thought it'd be cool to you know, he 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 saw machine shops in Silicon Valley getting rich. Um and he wanted to do that. And he didn't know what G one was, right? He didn't know anything. <laughs> uh so he started a machine shop in Sacramento. So it's a good kind of cost of living in Sacramento, but you do a lot of business in the Bay area. Um, and, and he actually had a network of people. He was an engineer in Silicon Valley. So he had a network of people. So he was any race go-karts. So he would make parts for the go-kart shops and, and then make parts for Silicon Valley. And then he got into the energy sector. And that was the first time I, I made anything out of, Inconel, you know, some Hasseloy, you know, some, some nasty stuff. 
back then, let me tell you, back in you know, 2001, I should pull up my resume to, to fact check my dates, but yeah, 2001-ish, cutting tools were terrible in comparison to they are now. A knowledge was was kept behind lock boxes, people's old people's brains. Um, your tool vendors, you know, were way less knowledgeable than they are now. Um, so, you know, I belly up to the, the tool counter, you know, my local tool guy, yeah, which is a, a big, big tool company. And I'm like, the boss probably low bid the hell out of this Inconel job. If we scrap one part, the job's in the red. Um, oh, jeez. <laughs> No stress, though, right? <laughs> no stress. And a company that can't really deal with a lot of red, right? And I need to do this. And he was like, <laughs> I was not expecting that answer. And he was like, oh, this, you know, and he, he basically was like, oh, Tom, you know, this guy on the other side of town, he he does a lot of ink now, but he's not very nice. <laughs> you know, and he's just a dude, owner of a machine shop, right? Right. He's like, I'll give you his info. I'm like, please. So long story short on that, I, I, I like, I offered to like work over there at night to help him just to help me get through this job. And he was kind of short staffed and, um, but I got his trust enough to kind of share some info with me if I worked for him at night and it was kind of weird, like doesn't even make any sense, but. And he kind of gave me his little secret recipe, which was by anything today's standards is like watching snails have sex. <laughs> I mean, it was so freaking painful, painful. I'm sure. Uh, and I had cut, you know, quite a bit of, you know, 316 stainless and stuff by then. I knew what work hardening was, but I didn't really know what work hardening was. Um, and I remember we got through... 12 parts, which was the job. And on the 11th, no, on the 12th part, the owner of the shop was like, dude, this thing has to go tomorrow. I was like, then it needs to run all night. And I've got plans to work at this other guy's shop tonight. (laughs) And he's like, okay, show me what to do. And I was like, all right, every 45 minutes, whatever, I have it come up and you check the tool and replace tool. And here's how the program works and blah, blah, blah. And it's going to go through four or five tools. Um, You know, just huge cycle time now is i don't remember the hours but it was a hours it was all night kind of thing now i think we could do it in an hour and a half um so anyways he he thought i was running it too conservative so he took upon himself to like do some of this back when they actually had knobs and he made the job go from you know actually make some money to i don't remember how much this yeah, it was a big, big chunk of Inconel, and it was on him if he scrapped it, and he scrapped the crap out of it. It was just a real big bummer. <laughs> oh, but, to get through 11 of them with 11, no issue. Zero scraps, yeah. Oh. So he, he gets through that, and he he was a stressed guy. He was, And I don't I don't put up with a lot from people. Like, I, you know, I'm, I just, I never, I've never been good at just taking a verbal beating from people. And so I kind of got a little bit of a verbal beating from him and I gave him like a, that's not how I work. You know, I can put that one behind me, but that doesn't happen again. So anyways, he he used to freak out and kind of scream and yell. And one day I was like, that's it. I'm done. I told you that's not how I work. We're done. Um, And 
I wanted, I was still racing go-karts at the time. So I, I made an agreement with like one of the bigger guys in the industry to go build his engines. So kind of still using my machine manufacturing kind of stuff. Right. And then, so that was a crazy fun time in my life. Still no kids. Had a, had a wife that was down to, you know, sell our soul to racing. And so anyways, we built some super, super, super fast shifter card engines, crazy, crazy expensive, like no cost, you know, kind of things. Built engines for Graham Ray Hall, if you follow IndyCars. It was just a really fun time in go-karting, kind of like the time I was in mountain biking where everything was just pushing. And um, when I got into go-karting, you know, Scott Speed, you know, there's a bunch of names that I was I was racing with and kind of rubbing shoulders with that, you know, a lot of those guys became big race car drivers. So it was a fun time in my life, but it was a, a lifestyle. It was a lifestyle career, right? It was, you build an engine for someone that costs 10 grand, they expect to have you on their cell phone 24 seven. And so I decided it was time to grow up and get back into being a machinist. And uh, that fabricator guy that I talked about before, I built the, the go-kart chassis. He had told me one time, you want to, I got his respect. And I got to where I could TIG weld and fabricate good enough to where he was like, you're really good, which meant a lot to me. But he was like, you want, you want the real, the real test, go build some headers, you know, build, build high end headers. And so I was at a point in my life where I was looking for something else, looking for the next knowledge and wanted to be able to go ride my headache. You talked about the safety part of go-kart racing. Like I had a, I had a big accident that came pretty close to killing me, broke my neck, crushed all my sinuses, tore my, to my liver, my large intestine. Bunch Jeez. Of stuff. Uh, basically did a face plant at about 90 miles an hour. Oof. Um, my head was messed up. And, um, so I was looking for like, take a shower without holding on to the wall because you know vertigo and all this weird stuff so i'm probably not going to race go-karts for a while let's find the next thing and this very very respected super high-end exhaust shop in sacramento area was looking for just a tig welder so it's actually a pretty good step back i don't i don't generally believe in taking many steps backwards but it was a pretty big step backwards for me money wise but i wanted to get ray ray cunningham's respect uh <laughs> so I, I applied for it, went in, did like a test weld, hand fit some tubes and they gave me a job. And that was only like a nine month thing, but it was, it was cool. Cause it was like a whole new set of skills that, I mean, I was just excited to go to work every day, make a V12, you know, header. Very cool. Yeah. It was just super, super cool. Made a bunch of stuff for Bonneville speed cars, a bunch of the, speed record cars we were building stuff for the shop was really known in that industry. You made a bunch of stuff for drag race teams and, and it was art. I mean, it was, it was art. I, I spent two days building a set of headers. Um, and the owner walked out. It's like, Oh, this one's good. And then he looks over at the other one. He had, he had emotional problems. Controlling his emotions is what I should say. And I already told you how I deal with those. Right. So he took the header above his above his head and threw it in the dumpster. And I'm like, what the F? And he was like, two of the seams you could see. So the seams on, you know, on exhaust tubing, you can see a seam. And we had to do everything where we hid the seams. Um, 
And I was like, well, good job. You just bent half the tubes in there and I could have cut that out and put a new one in. Nobody would ever known, right? Well, I was kind of done with him. Went over and worked in the motorcycle industry for a while, which is my passion. I totally did that out of a passion thing. I actually broke my arm. There's more details of that. I broke my arm, couldn't couldn't fabricate. Oh my goodness. I knew a friend at motorcycle shop, so I went and worked there. Just kind of as a holding pattern. And that was actually as much as I love machining, I anybody that knows me knows, you know, I'm I'm deep. I'm super passionate about it. Um that was probably the most fun job I ever had. 99% of it was the people. But I, I ended up a service manager and I was like, I want to be a mechanic. Those guys are killing it. Uh, so I was like shop foreman kind of thing. So I could kind of help the, the younger guys. I'm just a super mechanical person. So, you know, the mechanic part of it came came great. It was flat rate. Uh, you know, flat rate is I, I do good kind of my racer background, right? Like I do good, like doing good against the time clock, right? Like all the warranty jobs that everybody would freak out about, I'd be like, I'll take them. You know, as long as there's a bunch of them <laughs> where I could figure out like a, a system. Right. Make my own tools and stuff to like, we had to change valve springs on this dirt bike. And I was like, I'll take them all. I'll take them all. Everybody's complaining about four hours for a valve spring replacement because the procedure says take off the head. And I talked to Honda and they're like, we just need the valve springs replaced. I don't care if you take the head off. I was like, sweet. So I came up with a system where I was doing them in like 45 minutes. I'm getting paid for four hours. Oh, wow. And I'm like, give me five of them at a time. I can. Right. But that's how my brain thinks. And that's how I think I do well in manufacturing. Right. It's like just, just how you set your Allen wrench down between jobs, you know, adds, you know, two tenths of a second. Right. How you, you know, just all those stuff that I'm sure you've, you know, become well aware of, but. So anyways, after that, I got back into manufacturing. That The economy took a dump. So this is a key, super key point in my life. The economy took a dump. I had a friend that was starting a manufacturing business that had no idea what he was doing. He just had a product design. So he needed someone to come design stuff for him and, and program stuff for him, help him pick out machines, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I we just laid off a bunch of people at the motorcycle shop because now we're talking 2007. I'm sure I'm missing other shops and stuff I worked for, but um, now we're talking 2007, eight when the world's falling apart. Uh, how old are, can I ask how old you are, Dylan? 33. Okay. So yeah, you're very aware of the 2007, eight. I talked oh, yeah. 46 and I talked to some younger people now and they're like, they were oblivious to the world, you know, when the world was falling apart in 2007, eight, nine. Right. Oh no, I'm 32. I, I don't know how I screw that up every time. The simple math is the hardest part. Yeah. <laughs> Literally uh, just had a birthday like two weeks ago and I'm already screwing it up. That's so what was happening with stuff. you in 2008, 2009, I was just graduating from high school. So yeah, oh, the world man. was falling apart just as I was supposed to be an adult, which was great. Yeah. So, so I had just had a daughter. Oh, geez. Just had a daughter, January of 2008. In December of 2007, we laid off a whole crap ton of mechanics. So then I took baby leave, and during baby leave was like, time to be a machinist again. And by then, I had done, kind of breezed over it, but I had become a super dork in SolidWorks, became a super dork in 
I'd used five cam systems by then, all self-taught. And I knew enough people that I could like, I could go make a living as a machinist, as like contract programming and part design, whatever the hell I got to do. Work on machines if I have to. Um, yeah, there's always work in machining. Thankfully. There's always work in machining. Yeah. So actually the dynamic then was that a ton of shops laid people off and often they laid off their like good guys because they laid off, they started the payroll, right? They started at the top and went down, which is super interesting to me. And then they would get some jobs. So Sacramento is pretty defense heavy. So they would get some defense job because we were still bombing things and killing people. So they would get some big defense job that they couldn't handle. And uh, I would jump in and do it as basically contract work. I, I did that for myself for a long time. I helped, helped several motorsports companies like design products, start machine shops. Um, it was That was fun. That was really fun. But it was like, Lot hours, lot hours. It sounds like you've done some similar. So, you've done contract programming type stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, I've done a little bit of that. I still do a very little bit of that for yeah. some local people that yeah. I'm friends with. Uh, yeah, it's. I feel like it's even harder than running like a brick and mortar business because yeah. it's just yeah, you got to be on call all the time. You're constantly hunting for that next person. It's tough. Yeah, I knew. Uh, yeah, so. That dynamic is super interesting. I mean, we see on the Facebook groups and everything where everybody that knows, you know, how to use CAM software wants to be a, a, you know, contract programmer. Now, I'm not discouraging anybody from anything. Your your life will take you where it takes you. But to do it well, you've got to be an anal crazy person. Um, well, and you're the first point of blame, no matter what. Like, dude, they, I, you could give them all the documentation in the world, and they're going to screw it up, and it's going to be your fault. Yeah. So, so I would, tough. yeah. So I would go set it up, run it, make sure it was good. Give them this big documentation package, have them sign off on it, check in with them. And then somebody knocks a, you know, takes a 50 taper horizontal and knocks a tombstone off, off the pallet two months later and calls me your program. <laughs> yeah. Your program. The months. one that we've run for money for, <laughs> yeah. For two months, your program did this. <laughs> um, so that's basically what I did to get back into machining. I never really ever got out of it because it was always like, you know, do the side thing for this company, this kind of side thing. I had a pretty good reputation and that's, I try to think of life as kind of themes to kind of help guide you in a direction and kind of having a good network of people has always been a big positive theme for me, right? Going all the way back to being a mountain bike mechanic. Like I got that because people noticed, you know, work I did. And I made a good impression on somebody who who put my name in a hat for someone else. Almost every job I've had, like almost I'll talk about like the first job I actually applied for. But almost every job I've had, somebody knew somebody needed work and they knew, you know, one or Tim would would be able to do it. Um, yeah, it's incredibly important. It's a, a common theme I try to keep bringing up in this podcast is like it really is who you know in this industry. and you try to know the most people and just oh. don't burn any bridge. And I mean, like my first job in manufacturing, I left where I was very angry at them, but like I never let that be known. And now I still talk to my old boss, I don't know, once every couple months and we're friendly and you know, yeah. he has turned opportunities my way because of it. And it's, it's super important. 
Well, I was talking about how I don't take crap from people. That's kind of a dumb thing I picked up from my dad, to be honest. But the difference, my dad would like nuke that bridge. Um, I bite my tongue. My tongue would be a lot shorter if I literally bite my tongue. But <laughs> I bite my tongue. I I'd leave on, I go out of my way to offer, you know, if I give a two-week notice, I offer to come in in evenings, you know, after the two weeks. I do all kinds of, do they deserve it? Maybe not, but I do. You know, I deserve the goodwill that comes with it, right? Um, yeah, so that network is kind of what we're talking about, right? So part of that com- what comes with the network for me is being willing to kind of do things for people, right? Um, so I talked about, you know, bellying up to the, the tool counter asking about, you know, help me with, you know, machining this Inconel stuff. And it was like, you know, old man Tom across the, you know, town. Um, but now I'm super helpful for the tooling guys, right? So now we actually have better tooling guys than at least this area had back in, you know, the early 2000s. And when they need help with something, I'm, you know, give lots of free information without expecting anything back. But that's paid a hundred times over. My local tool, you know, tool sales guys, you know, machine sales guys. Anytime I've like wanted extra work or another job or something, those are the first guys I call because they're in people's shops every month. Tool guys are, so everybody remember this one. If, if, if all you get out of this, you know, Dylan, you talked about like getting kind of a nugget, you know, out of, you know, each one of these calls, right? If people listening, like make those tool guys, so many people today, and kind of this newer, like Insta machinist kind of world are just buying all their tools online. I do too, but what you're missing with that is the tool guys are in everybody else's shop at least once a week or two, right? And so you're missing this relationship that I can't even begin to tell you how valuable that's been to me. So like I'll, I could buy my goo rig or however you, Gurig or whatever you pronounce the brand, uh, <laughs> Guring or whatever. Guring, yeah, I guess. Guring, yeah, I can, I can buy those from MSC. You know, the worst company in the industry by far. You're not going to hear any disagreement. <laughs> Disagree from with me, me dear. Yeah, I, I, I'm not. No, I've <laughs> never been more angry at a website than trying to search for something on MSC. Well, that's that's before you talk about what they do to the tooling companies. So I'll I'll go on a short tangent. The 138 series MA4 rougher finisher for aluminum. Um, that used to be one of my favorite aluminum end mills and still is if you don't buy it from MSC. Um, they literally put the screws to MA Ford so hard and MA Ford was in this position where they were making so much revenue with them that they had to drop their price. So they started getting, uh, they sell, and I've heard this, I probably shouldn't be mentioning all these company names, but that's fine do something about it right <laughs> they basically they started using crappy carbide for the tools they make for msc oh i can interesting i can tell you i can buy a 138 series from msc and i can buy a 138 series from western tool and i can very easily break one in aluminum which is shouldn't be happening and and doesn't even come close the surface finish is better everything every, it's really crazy and I know they've done that to two companies that I've personally known people at the cutting tool company. Very um, interesting. I mean, I could see it. Yeah. Cause it's one of those things where 
technically it's still a 138. One's, one might be micrograin and one's sub-micrograin or something. And yeah, totally one's different. Japanese carbide blank. One's, I don't want to single countries <laughs> out. But right, yeah. <laughs> another one's another one. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so I could buy my, my drills that I like from from MSC for, you know, actually the 35 cents cheaper for my eighth inch drill. I can also have them just delivered from Western tool, uh, you know, by a guy that I like. And then when I have some weird problem, I can call that guy and be like, Hey, help me out with this. And he knows the, the rep that actually reps, you know, Goring and, um, and that's just like the smallest benefit. But for me, the biggest benefit is I can also call that tool guy and be like, dude, I'm starving. Uh, I need some work. Do you know anybody that wants just a crappy jobs that want to hand off some crappy jobs that I'll, I'll do. And I've, I've paid my mortgage and makes me sound like I'm living paycheck to paycheck, but just increased my, my money. Right. Very, yeah. very, very easily. My Haas sales rep, Metro sales guy. You know, I have a brother that needs a job. You know, I call him, Hey, do you know anybody that needs an operator? And poof. He just has a job. So that actually is probably not the terrible time to lead me to. Okay. So chronologic, I mean, I'm making my life story longer than ever in my life. Um, <laughs> no, I'm loving it. So I, I normally have this dialed in at like one and a half minutes. Well, so I had been at your M hub presentation in mm. 2016 at IMTS. Okay. And so all I knew was, you know, whatever aerospace company, I think it was like L3 or something that you worked at. That's and that's all I knew that's of my your next backstory. Story, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I, that's all I've known. So this has been super cool to see <laughs> everything else that led to that point. So when you talk about obsessiveness and being a winner, right? I mean, uh, my best friend growing up, you know, he said, you're, you're the most passionate, most competitive person I've ever met in my life. He's a very passionate, very competitive person. <laughs> He's not a couch server. Um, so, so actually that's something that's kind of framed my life and that's how I got the job at L3. So after, you know, motorcycle shop, I'd kind of started my own business. I already had my own business, but I, I was like, I got a baby to feed, take care of. I made more money in the next couple years after the economy fell apart than I ever had in my whole life, even today. And I'm, I'm overpaid at Autodesk, but I was working, dude. I was working. I said no to nothing. Shops that laid off their top guys would need these like piecemeal things that kind of were more challenging than the people at their shop was handling. <clears throat> I would, um, I would get up at four in the morning and start working. Uh, I would take time you know, with my, my wife and my now ex-wife with her and, and my daughter until she got off to daycare. I'd go back to work, go out to the shop, come back, have dinner time. And then I would put them to bed, put both of them to bed and I'd work till midnight. And it's such actually a terrible life thing to do. But I did that for a couple of years. I'm sure we all know people having heart attacks and strokes and stuff like that. So I'm not saying that's a great way to live because I think that's pretty fast track to that. But it's also kind of taking like a PhD course in machining, right? Go go start a machine shop and you'll get a quick quick PhD course in, in a oh, lot yeah. of things, right? Yeah. Um so that was unsustainable and I knew it. So I started putting feelers out to get a real job. 
And I took a couple big contract jobs that felt more like a real job. Um, and then one thing I learned a long time ago at that first machine shop was never say no. Um, I didn't really understand what that meant or didn't apply it properly until later, until about this time in my life where instead of saying, no, I can't do that, I would just charge what I would be happy to do it. That was like a life changing thing right there. Oh, yeah. It was freaking amazing how many people would say yes within a few minutes. And then I was still working my ass off, but it was just getting paid way more. And then finally I got to where I was doing these couple of big contracts and I was like kind of looking for like the good real job. And now I'll step in L3. A really good machine shop owner friend of mine, uh, he, he just knows everything. Like he knows what's happening everywhere all the time, everything. And he sent me a job posting and was like, dude, you might be the only guy on earth that fits all these dumb, weird qualifications. <laughs> it was like, uh, basically CAD, CAD expert, you know, uh, the dude that wrote it, I know, and he's nuts, but the job thing was like, Manual machining, CNC machining, design work, fixture work, mechanic, you know, it's like just this laundry list of like, unless you did weird stuff like me, there's like not many people and I'm not patting myself on the back, but I was like, kind of, yes, pretty much. Yes, pretty much. Yes. (laughs) And I was literally like all the people I've crossed paths with. I can't think of a single person that can say yes to, you know, fabrication, you know, all this weird, super weird stuff had experience starting machine shops, right? Everybody I knew, here's actually what I'll back off to say. Everybody I knew that checked most of the boxes had machine shops they're happy with. They were, right. they were yeah, they own their, their own, own company own or something. Shop, right? Yeah. And I remember during the interview saying, there's only a few people that check these boxes and they're either someone that's tired of running their own shop uh, happy running their own shop and you can't afford them. A weirdo like me that's been too scared to really start a machine shop. Cause that's, I know a lot of shop owners listen to this. And honestly, that's been my, that's been my issue with, you know, really starting a machine shop because I'm too scared. I'm not a very confident person in a lot of ways. Surprise a lot of people. A lot of people think I'm really confident, but I'm just super persistent and scared, too scared to fail. Right. <laughs> Which I think sometimes is, those look the same though. I was sure. going to say, which I think is really what's hiding behind a lot of people's confidence. Right. Um, so anyways, this L3 job pops up like many jobs today. You can only apply online. I applied online. There's nowhere to attach a resume. And I'm like, I just look like every other schmuck out there. Um, Man, and not surprising, I didn't hear squat from him ever for a month and a half. I went and stalked the place at night. (laughs) 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 Wanted to learn about them. I probably (laughs) eight eight or nine, ten hours learning about their history, learning about this division, you know, all this weird stuff. That's that kind of obsessiveness that I have. But I also had time in sales, really just working at... um, residual sales. Like, you know, I build engines, you know, I have to sell myself, you know, I, I work at a bike shop, I have to sell. Right. And I was like, uh, how can I sell myself? I was like, can't like my charm, you know, and all that, like is nothing with this stupid online thing. And so what I decided to do is I made up a resume and a cover letter and a portfolio of work that I've done. Luckily, 
basically had a lot of the work I had done because I was designing. I did tons of fixture stuff, product design, you know, all that stuff. And what I did in this portfolio was I highlighted, I didn't just like, hey, look at all these, you know, basically CNC porn, right? Right. What I did was um, pretty pretty much broke down like a problem statement, you know, this pro- a project, problem statement, how we overcome, what we did to overcome it and kind of the success. And I, I highlighted several projects that I'd worked on printed it up, put it on a spiral thing. And I, <clears throat> and I just walked into the lobby and dressed nice, walked into the lobby and the, the front lady was like mad dog, mad dogged me, wanted to shut me down hard. <laughs> and I was like, Hey, I applied for this job. I haven't heard back. Uh, can you just give this to HR manager? And she's like, no, all that's online. And I was like, yep, I got that. I think I'm qualified. I haven't heard anything back. And I'm just asking you to just hand this off to the HR manager. Nope, it's all done online. And I was like, damn. I was giving her my million dollar smile. And, you know, so I'm usually pretty good at flirting with old ladies and that wasn't working. <laughs> and um, finally, I was just like, all right, well, maybe throw in the garbage if you want. But I would really appreciate it if it just found its way into the inbox of the HR, you know, person. And I was like, have a good day. And I turned around and like, that's done. Um, but at least it was done, right? Like a lot of salespeople that I respect was like, yes or no is fine. Just hurry up and get to it. The faster you can get to know, the, the better. Right. And that's not really what I was thinking, but at least I was like, okay, that's behind me. Focus on the next thing. Because I, you know, I've talked several times, like I'm obsessive about things. I So this was several weeks of me just obsessing about this, this job. Um, they basically wanted to modernize their machine shop. They had some, and brownies and you know prototrack basically and they're making this l3 communications they're they're making uh you know high end, real high-end communication payloads for satellites and i mean i, I you know i basically snuck into the, the you know the back of their shipping area and was looking into the machine shop through the window and was like oh <laughs> all stuff i should do but um so i was obsessing about it for a couple of weeks anyways before i got home my cell phone's ringing from Folsom, which is, I knew, I knew it was that. And the HR manager was like, wow, glad you dropped this by being passed around the engineering office right now. When can you get in? And it was like, man, what lesson is there from that? Um, you know, just don't follow the norms, right? Yeah. Just nothing be ventured, persistent. nothing gained. Yeah. I think is a big thing. Yeah. So anyways, that turned out to be, I paid more than I ever thought I'd make in my whole life um, from like a real paycheck. I was making more working a hundred hours a week, you know, um, for myself, but I actually had like real vacation time. I like benefits from a family, you know, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Big stuff. Uh, and then I had this blank canvas as a machine shop to basically reimagine to, you know, what it was going to be for the future of L3. Um, that was super rad. So, um, we, uh, forgot it had a Miltronics, an old Miltronics from 1987, like a, literally a fiberglass enclosure, like oh, a, geez. um, look like a boat. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I thought we could sell some of this equipment. It's a bunch of weird old stuff. We could sell some of this, help put it in, in the, you know, big corporation. They're like, 
it's actually better if that stuff just disappears. You know, we got to claim revenue and all this stuff. So I made some friends in Sacramento Valley pretty happy. I gave away like two bridge boards and Miltronics. And uh, the guy that started Miltronics has a nice, successful machine shop now and basically oh, awesome. built it all off of that and a brownie. I, oh, cool. Uh, I kind of wish I would have kept one of the brownies, but, um, <laughs> so we started, you know, cool little prototype shop. And the, the goal with this shop was to, at the time, payload communication packages used to take 36 weeks from contract to delivery. And everything's just so fast these days. Everybody expects everything to be instant. So the goal was to get that under 20 months. Um, and I worked there for four years. That was the longest job I'd ever had. It sounds bad, but every job I had was like 18 months, 24 months. It was like, oh, that looks interesting. I'll go do that. And that looks interesting. I'll go do that. But this felt like a real, real job. You know, actually like 401k that they took care of me and some stocks, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. But we got it down to, what was it? It was, it was comfortably under 16 months, um, wow. which was huge in four years. Um, we were doing way more complex stuff than we'd ever done. And then when I left to come to Autodesk, and I'll tell that story in a second, but the VP of engineering, we went out to lunch, we played softball with them, talking about that kind of network of people, right? Like I invested in the people. I invested in the relationships between me and engineering, which is very often a contentious relationship. I invested in my relationship with a crazy lady, and I'm certain she's not listening. So the crazy lady in QC... Um, I listened to her talk about her cats and all that stuff that I didn't care about because she had these God rights to say, talk about my burrs that I didn't think were really burrs. And, um, so I went out to lunch with the VP of engineering when I was leaving L3 and he's like, you know, the most valuable part of having you here was not the shop, which was great being able to machine stuff that, you know, people are giving us literally like two year lead times on we were doing in two to three weeks. He was like, it was the freaking relationship you had with engineering. You know, when they knew they were getting ready to design some hard thing, they would come back, talk to you first. I started using HSM works. That was life changing. And I'll talk about that in a second. I had a PO for Mastercam because that was what I was using at the time. I'd used like five cam systems by then. And Mastercam was kind of the the thing I hated, but always came back to. Right. And then my, my buddy, Joe Lillard, very respected Mastercam, very respected Mastercam guy. He has his own shop. Probably one of the most competent machinists I know. And I know, I know a lot of machinists. Um, he was like, I'd used cam works before this. And I can very comfortably say it's the only cam software I ever hated. I mean, I, I have a love hate with all of them, including fusion, to be honest, but it was the only one that it made me want to, and I'm not a throw my computer kind of guy, but I come pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> so he knew I wanted this like solid works experience, right? I did so much design and programming. He knew I wanted this experience and he was like, dude, check out HSM works. It's probably crap and it's probably crazy expensive. Check it out. And uh, so I, this is how I met Al Watmo. I mean, it was another big change in my life. I was a very, very early customer in 2011. Um, I was building out a budget to start this machine shop. It's big corporate, stupid corporate, justify everything kind of budgeting. I had to have three 
three prices, you know, three quotes for software. And I was really just trying to buy Mastercam. So I needed three other ones. I got like NX. You know, I was literally just trying to go like most expensive, a Hypermillion NX I had. Right. Just literally trying to get the expensive (laughs) stuff to make my Mastercam, 30 something thousand dollars for Mastercam look inexpensive. And, and so I just requested a quote and I so swear, this was when Al was at NextGen? NextGen. He was okay. a he was an apps engineer at NextGen. And working his way into, I don't want to tell his story. I, I know you've had him. I don't remember him really getting into the details. He was working his way into like a, some ownership kind of roles there. He, um, So he called me like less than five minutes later. Uh, and I was like, in my underwear, in my home office, just trying to do a, another side job um, <laughs> in Mastercam, and I was I was really frustrated with Mastercam. Basically, wanted to take my stock, and I wanted to put it up at like a forty degree angle, and then machine it with a three axis machine. And dynamic milling was not doing exactly what I wanted. And I was super crazy, crazy, crazy frustrated with it, and I was I'm really good at work around, so I was going through this like thousand click, you know, work around and Al calls me and I was like trying to blow him off. And, and I was like, all right, when do you want to set up a demo? I just need a price. And when do you want to set up a demo? And he said, well, I just, just, just sent you a demo trial. And I don't think you need a demo. It sounds like, you know, how to use SolidWorks and it sounds like, you know, how to machine stuff. You should be able to just pick it up. There is a three minute video of just how to make a setup. If you need more than that, just call me. You know, we'll walk you through whatever you need. Um, and I swear to you, 45 minutes later, I was at a shop across town, machining stuff with HSM Works. And I remember asking Al, like, so does it post? Because Mastercam's trial would let you post like 100 lines of code or something like that at the time. And I was been using Mastercam long enough where it was like a trial would not do any code. And then it was like, 50 lines, you know, they kept kind of sneaking out lines of code. And uh, I personally owned a seat of Mastercam that I paid like 30 grand for. <clears throat> 4,000 for a post or, you know, something like that. And um, anyways, I was using a fully functioning software and I was machining that problem that I was struggling with. I was already machining 45 minutes later in a shop across town. Um, and I was just doing the roughing that was kicking my ass in Mastercam and it did exactly what I had been dreaming. Mastercam would do it in my thousand click workarounds. The adaptive, the adaptive was just like literally working the way I wanted. (laughs) I mean, there's not much of a better commercial for it than like, eh, you know how to machine, just have at it. You'll figure it out. Like somebody came to me about that, about any other software and manufacturing, I'd be like, I don't believe you. I Dude, I I'd done it with Gibbs, Surfcam, Camworks, Mastercam, you know, and it was all like, and I'm too stupid. I, like I gotta like at least see the workflow, and then I'll figure it out. And because they all have these weird legacy like checkbox that nobody understands, you know, I'm not I'm not here on your show to you know talk up fusion or anything, but uh, that's something I'm pretty proud of is that how easy it is to just get moving. And how accessible, you know, the accessibility of it, it's, it's been pretty fun for me. So anyways, that's how I met Al is, you know, I just needed an expensive quote. I thought it was going to be super expensive. <laughs> it wasn't. 
And I had to write an 11 page justification of buying HSM for L3. No uh, way. Yeah. And I'm not a, I'm not a bureaucracy person. I struggled. I struggled, but, but we, I bought it. We started the shop and bought some Haas machines and, and, and did, did cool stuff at L3. It was, it was rad. I mean, we, we had, we would be on the fifth revision of something and it's just so easy because HSM works at the time. Like, oh, I actually, we sold the whole company to, for switching over from pro E to freaking SolidWorks because of HSM works. That's a freaking story right there. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, because they saw like, I would design a fixture, they would need a rev change and I would just change it, regenerate the code and run in the machine. They saw that workflow and were like, how do we do that with, you know, these microwave housings? And I was like, you use SolidWorks. <laughs> <laughs> Pro E would Pro E would make a surface. I don't know if you've gotten any Pro E files with threaded holes. Any very little. Okay. Yeah. My last job, they had used Pro E when it was wildfire, I think. Yeah. And so there was still some legacy stuff that was like, ugh, this sucks. Yeah. So if they if they make a thread a certain way, the thread comes in with the hole and then the surface. And so some of these microwave houses would have 1200 holes. And so you have 1200, you know, you open your bodies, right? And you have just 1200 surfaces and a body, like a real body. So it'd be just an hour of dealing with that. Um, so anyways, we switched everybody over to SolidWorks and HSM works. I don't brag about that too much at Autodesk. <laughs> hey, you but, at least were using HSM works. That's yeah, totally. kind of there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it was a, it was the first time I'd been a CAM customer that HSM used to have in the help menu, like give feedback. I, my grandfather used to say, careful what you ask. You might actually get it. Uh, <laughs> and I used to be like, careful if you ask for feedback, because I'm going to give it to you. And I would always try to make it funny. Like I had a couple, like I have a dream, you know, kind of speeches like MLK. <laughs> I have a dream that someday I can do a chamfer without running into a wall and having to, you know, trim, 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 trim. And so that what I still call the magic chamfer that came from my feedback and Renee just being inspired one weekend. Oh, how cool. Yeah. So that was like a weekend. I went from literally spending nine hours programming. I call them blind chamfers, but chamfers that go against an adjacent wall of like trim, 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 simulate, trim, trim, simulate, trim, trim, simulate, trim, trim, simulate. Okay, that's good. You know, move on. Because we had, you know, our QA was inspecting burrs under microscopes. And then uh, I I did the same part that I had like nine hours, hundreds of toolpaths just for these stupid chamfers to spending like, it was half an hour or something. And it was half an hour, like barely believing it, coming up with this, this fun expression, um, calling, you know, my geek friends at Autodesk, like, Hey, you know, how do I do this? Cause I'm too stupid to figure that. Out. And they're like, Oh, you got to put inches if you want to. Um, yeah. So that was a fun time because so any, what's time funny wrong was little side tangent yeah, is yeah. I sold my first job on switching to fusion. Like we had a bunch of old master cam licenses and that was one of the features that I used to sell them on it. I was like, Hey, we're constantly struggling with burrs and, and not edge breaking and having the hand chamfer. Yeah. I was like, check out how cool this, uh, this feature is. And they're like, yeah. that's, that is neat. Yeah. 
I would work with our engineers. Like I would make a, you know, I'd work with one engineer, make a housing and be like, Hey, what can I change? And he would tell me what I could and couldn't change. And all the external corners that would have a sharp corner. I would just add like a, in their notes, they would say, you know, max five thou, you know, edge break, whatever. So I'd add like a five thou radius or two thou radius. And our QC lady would be like, I don't know why, but your parts are just nicer. They're just nicer than subbing them out or whatever. And then, so finally we had, you know, last project I was working on was basically designed for manufacturability rules. And it was, you know, it was all those little things where like somebody doesn't have to sit under a microscope for three hours on every housing and um, all those little things. And kind of throughout my whole career, a lot of people would be like, I don't know why your, your parts just look nicer. You know, it's not like my wall finish was nicer, but I would take the time to go into CAD and add this tiny little fillet here and, and actually model a legit, you know, 3D chamfer in instead of just dragging the burn knife across it. And um, a lot of times I just felt like I hated myself because I was, I was working on a contract, not an hourly thing. Right. <laughs> but I do believe that stuff adds up. So yeah, that's how you get the reputation you had. Yeah. So. Yeah. But, so so this I, sounds like the perfect yeah. job for you. So what made you leave? It was the job I was going to die or retire from. I was the I was the, the heavy hitter on the softball team. You know, I was all good friends. That the the friend I said I took from job to job to job to job. I totally lied about his machining experience and, and hired him as as my machinist because I knew I could mold him into whatever I wanted. I shouldn't admit that. That was a like lied about his machine. I wrote his own, I wrote his resume for him. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? If, if it worked, it sounds like it was. He was perfect. He was absolutely yeah. perfect. Yeah. He would machine. I knew he had enough attention to detail to where he wouldn't jeopardize me. Right. He was the first guy we hired and we would put $50,000 housings in a, in a machine to do some minor machining. And we were the last person to touch it before shipping. You know, we just spent two years or a year and a half making this thing. And if we screwed it up, it was a million. It was just crazy amount of money. The $50,000 was the least that they cared about. You know, it was a million dollar contract or something that would just be in the garbage. So I needed someone we could trust. So the question was, why did I leave? Um, well, I've said a few times, like I've always said, if if there was an opportunity in front of me, I would explore it. And I wasn't looking at all. And actually, it's funny to hear Al tell the story versus me tell the story. But the essence is basically the same. I wasn't looking for a job. Al talks like I was looking for a job. But DMG Mori, the reseller in our area, was was headhunting. And through a tool guy, through a cutting tool guy, they were like, he was like, Tim's your guy. They were looking for an apps engineer. And um, so they were... They were being pretty aggressive throughout money, more money than I was making. I was an hourly guy, so I was killing it at L3 because they tried to turn me over to being salary a few times. I was like, if you match my what I've been actually making, because <laughs> <laughs> we had deadlines and stuff, and I've always been you know, happy to work extra. And So anyways, they threw a bunch of money at me, and I, was, I hadn't heard actually, honestly, great things about them, about working for them. Let's be clear on that. Um, and I was looking for reasons to say no. So I knew Al had got around. And so I called three people. Al was one of them. And I was asking him, like, I'm looking for a reason to say no. 
And he was like, are you really looking for a job? And it was a serendipity thing. He was like four hours ago. Uh, I, so he, he had, he had been at Autodesk by then and Autodesk bought HSM and Anthony Graves, who was awesome, was one of the basically founders of HSM. He was the product manager and he kind of stayed his contract of the acquisition and he quit. Story goes, and I know Anthony, I think it was like the day after his his requirement to stay was. Oh, wow. Actually, I met him at the DSI event because he's now at HP. Yeah, Yeah. just recently. He's one of my, uh, he's one of my favorite people. I say that with, he's, he's a great person, a lot of character. Um, so he quit and Al was going to be the new product manager. And, but Al was told from one of my favorite bosses ever was told, you can't take that until you find your replacement. And the the story goes, so the only real detail that Al, Al and I mix up is that I wasn't actually looking for another job. Um, but I called Al and Al was like, literally told my boss four hours ago, there's only two people that would really want to replace me. And I think they're both really, really happy where they're at. And you know, Rob Lockwood, mm-hmm. Rob Lockwood was the other one. And then there was me. And he was like, seems like it was meant to be. And I was like, really looking for another job. <laughs> but then I said, but I've always said, so why would I not follow that now? And it was hard. It was really, really, really hard for me to walk away from being a, a very respected machinist. I'm a machinist because it's in my soul to... I mean, I jokingly say selling my soul to the software industry, but I mean, it it was kind of selling my soul to the software industry. Being an application engineer, which is, I remember telling friends I had at L3 what I was going to be doing. I'm like, I'm going to be an application engineer, help people make parts. And a couple of them are like, you're going to be a sales guy. I'm like, no, no, I'm not a sales guy. <laughs> I was basically a technical salesperson, right? TJ and I were like the the super dorks running around, you know, being heroes, right? Um, so, funny story about uh, about I know I know you and I are on camera, podcast isn't on camera, but I'll show you this part. So there's this dumb little part that you can see, but everybody else, it's just a it's actually a pretty recognizable part if you've been around HSM for a while. But Al had a demo part during my interview with Joe Bailey. One of my other favorite bosses, Joe Bailey, was like, "So you you learn software pretty good?" And I was like, "Yeah, I'm the I'm the best. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned I learned SolidWorks Pro E and not Inventor SolidWorks Pro E and five CAM systems all by myself." And he's like, "Great, I just sent you an NFR, which is a not for resale license of Inventor HSM. Sounds like you haven't used it yet." And he's like, "How about you download that, install it, play around? I sent you a picture of this part." Maybe just design that part. Maybe put some toolpaths on it. Maybe we can talk tomorrow, 10 a.m. And just, he's like, you don't have to finish it. I just want to see how the experience was, kind of, you know, make sure you can install it and all that kind of stuff. I was nervous. I was super nervous, but um, it came pretty easy. You know, YouTube's the freaking best thing ever on earth. Not, it's probably also the worst, right? But, um, <laughs> um so I, you know, I downloaded, installed it, designed it, and was like, "Shit, why don't I just go machine it at L3?" So I machined it, and like, in under a couple hours, I sent Al a picture because I told him, "Hey, this is what's going on." He's like, "All right, well, let me know if you need any help." 
And a couple hours later, he's like, you freaking kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) I heard good things from the interview, but he's like, I think that that's going to lock it down. So he, he actually texted that to Joe that, that night. And, uh, and then, so they, they offered me a job and there's a little more story to it, but, um, my, my time at Autodesk was super, super interesting. First couple of years were pretty special. We were basically treated like a very well-financed startup inside this big beast of a company. So we had autonomy to do special things without, you know, the big corporate, you know, way of things. My job was basically like run around and be a hero, you know, do machine tool demos, trade show demos. Um, you know, made a belt buckle, you know, for Matsura that Mr. Matsura still wears. Made a freaking bottle opener that I keep seeing still today, like being made at different, you know, trade shows and different people's classes and stuff. I made that bottle opener, like literally two beers deep in the Amtrak ride. Uh, (laughs) I was going to uh, the San Jose machine tool show and pretty good friends with the Selway family and the, the Selway, you know, reseller. And they texted me, Hey, you know, we're screwed. This is material we have, this tooling we have, and we don't have a demo for it, for this DM one. Can you help us out? And I was like, yeah, no problem. Sitting there, like, I like to be creative and I was like, how am I going to make? And then I forgot to get my, the, the cap taken off my Corona on the Amtrak. <laughs> so I go back and, you know, I get my cap taken off my Corona and the Amtrak. I'm like, I'm gonna make a bottle opener. So literally, in 45 minutes, I made that bo- made this bottle opener that a lot of people have seen. And then it just the the demo went crazy smooth, and it was just it was just fun. Um, and then my time at Autodesk. So then I, I moved around to be you know apps engineer. I was on the adoption team to help new customers. That's kind of where my heart is is to help kind of teach people things and. Product manager, you know, I worked worked for Al. Uh, CJ reported to me for for a short time. Um, that was that was a great job. It's probably the best career move I would have made if I didn't leave it. It's probably the worst career move I ever made leaving that that position. But it was, you know, it's corporate it's corporate world, corporate politics in that position, and I just want to focus on doing rad stuff. Um, but I, you know, I feel like I made a big impact on the, on the team and on the product that was, I came onto that team at the time that basically all the Dell cam development. And so I, before this job, I was actually a business strategy manager that I was super not qualified for. I was supposed to have an MBA, barely got out of high school. You know, I, I got this job with an MBA dealing with, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in business, <laughs> but I was a key part of the team that basically convinced Autodesk to, to put our real focus on fusion. At the time, it was like half half of our group wanted to focus on Delcam products and half wanted to focus on Fusion. So I was one of the people that helped kind of put a big focus on Fusion, which is, and then I moved over to product management. So my job- I mean, Without an MBA, yeah. that doesn't matter. You That's a big thing. Like, big thank you from me personally well, as a Fusion that's user. That's good to hear. That's, that's good yeah. to hear. Because, I mean, how long have you been using Fusion? NHSM or, yeah. I remember downloading Fusion when it was still Fusion and Cam 360. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, this is really janky. And <laughs> then I stopped years using or something. It. Six, seven, yeah. eight years. Okay. And then I feel like maybe six months after they finally integrated it and it was like 
usable. And I was like, oh, I can make code on this and make parts on this. Uh, awesome. I started dabbling in it on my own. And then, yeah, my, my first job, I was getting so sick of Mastercam. I was like, all right, I'm using Fusion at home. This is so much easier. We're a prototype shop. I want less clicks to make parts. Yeah. And yeah. I showed my boss and he actually, he bought Fusion at a time where they were like pushing adoption so much. I think we bought like two or three licenses and they sent Kurt Chan out for like three <laughs> days of on-site training. <laughs> that's and amazing. Like, this would never happen now, but yeah, uh, that's yeah, amazing. super cool. That's yeah. awesome. Um, uh, okay, so I moved over to product management. I basically the mission at product management. Al is a freaking wonderful human being, wonderful product leader, you know, wonderful leader. And that that's what he does really good at bringing the right people together for things. And so it was at a time that I came into product management at a time when uh, Delcam hated Fusion, Fusion hated Delcam. I'm giving you a, a bit of the baloney factory, right? Um, but, uh, you know, we were all basically trying to say, no, we're not just a toy. And they were like, well, we're the established, you know, very British kind of, you know, leader. And I don't think either of us respected what each of us did enough. And then my job was basically to help the development team get passionate about Fusion, help the product managers in the UK get passionate about Fusion. My very first kind of mission when I was part of the product team was to take take the, the not the head, but kind of the very influential product managers out on a field trip to go meet Fusion customers. Because that's the one thing, I've talked about relationships quite a bit, but like the one thing that I've probably my superpower at, at Autodesk has been to genuinely and authentically be connected with customers. You know, I, I, I mean, I'm not trying to solicit people reaching out on Instagram, but <laughs> I answer Instagram, you know, I help people on Instagram. I, I'm a deeply passionate person about making things and helping people be awesome. And with that comes, you know, genuine connections, right? So, I took, I took, you know, the project managers on this field trip in NorCal and it was a very curated, you know, like we're going to take you to this monster company. We're going to take you to this like place that kind of, you might be embarrassed to walk into because it's, you know, this just, just slummy kind of hole in the wall, grimy, but these dudes, you know, these dudes are hustlers. They're looking towards the future. So I kind of took, you know, these guys are inventor HSM customers that are very hesitant to move to fusion. You know, I kind of gave them this, these guys are HSM customers hesitant to move to Fusion. So I gave, gave them this really curated kind of uh, tour. And then Craig Chester, I would say probably the most influential geek product manager in the manufacturing space. When we were leaving the last place, he was like, you know, the one thing that stands out is how how much respect those people have for you. And that, you know, when you talk about things that matter, you know, like things that big accomplishments. Like I feel like I'm a, I'm, I always feel like I'm a, I'm a fraud. I'm a fake, you know, like all this kind of very insecure kind of dumb stuff. But when I think of accomplishments, it's like, I, th I think I do have a lot of genuine, authentic respect with, with different companies. And um, this is the most I've talked about myself that I can remember because I was taught a long time ago to like listen more than you talk. Right. Um, so well, that was, I think one thing that that's why I love doing this podcast yeah. is I think a lot of us in this industry have a lot of imposter syndrome and a lot of us have learned that lesson of like, you shouldn't be the smartest person in the room, but like yeah. 
I don't know. Yeah. All the stories I have out here are so interesting, yours included, that yeah. I'm, I'm very glad that people do share. Yeah. You know, talking about learning, you know, from people, learning about people, try to get like genuinely connected with people. Like I, for most of my life, never told anybody I was dyslexic, never told anybody I struggled in, in school. Um, I, I haven't, gra- you know, I've got college credits. You know, I, I can't officially check some college on a resume application. I'm super insecure working at Autodesk about my education. The first month I was working at Autodesk, I was sitting down in a dinner with Carl Bass, John, you know, all these people. Al was there. CJ was there. CJ was in the middle of prepping for finals. And and CJ's finals come up. And then Carl looks at me and is like, where did you graduate? Oh, no. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm getting fired. I'm literally getting fired. I was I was honest. I was totally honest about all everything. And I don't remember what I said, but everybody just kind of like, oh, you know, it was just it wasn't a big deal. And Carl said something like, I think, you know, what you'll notice in the tech industry is people care more about show me, don't tell me, like, show me what you've done. Don't don't tell me what you know. Right. Um, super, super important for me. Not honestly, my time at Autodesk has done a lot for my confidence. Um, I still have that imposter syndrome. I I was asked to write a um an article in CNC West magazine. My first reaction, and this is kind of a theme in my life too. Like my first reaction was like, hell no, uh, <laughs> I'm dyslexic. You know, I can give you a thousand reasons why that should not be me. And for whatever reason, a long time, no, I can actually tell you why bike shop. I used to manage right out of high school. The, the owner used to, he knew just enough how, how far to push me. He knew I was shy. I knew I was smart. He would sign me up to do riding clinics. You know, I was like, I can wheelie a bicycle till my legs get tired. Well, I don't know about now with my dumb, dumb broken ankles. <laughs> but, um, you know, so he'd sign me up for these dumb, you know, elementary safety things to go dazzle kids. And he would always just lean on me. And he would say, like, like sign yourself up to do hard things and you'll figure it out and you'll gain confidence from that, right? So my time at Autodesk, like I signed up to do that stupid CNC West articles because I was like super insecure about my, my writing skills, like figure it out. And I think I have an interesting perspective about things. It's been a really confidence kind of building thing. It's terribly painful. Everyone I write, um, cause I care about dumb little details and Right. Um, but it's a learned muscle. Like I, I have totally, the same thing totally, yeah. for the DSI event when they asked me, like I have a fourth axis. I've done a little bit of four plus one and they were like, yeah. Hey, do you want to be on the multi-axis panel? And I was like, Ooh, uh, I guess. <laughs> and then I was like, Hey, actually I want you to host the multi-axis panel. I was oh, like, no, Oh, kidding. So all of the imposter syndrome possible for here. And I was like, you know what? All right. I'm just going to do it. Like I have some you know, hosting experience, yeah. obviously. Yeah. But yeah, it's one of those things you just got to force yourself to do. And good for you. It's a, a learned, it, it's not a, I think that there are some people that have that inherent confidence yeah. of just speaking, but totally. for the rest of us, it's, it's a, a thing you practice. It's working out, you know? Yeah. So it's tough. So I have a, and hopefully you get a laugh out of a story. So I was a mountain bike mechanic for one of the baddest women that raced mountain bike. She's got some Guinness world record for gold medals and X games and stuff. And back in the nineties, when X game mountain bikes were on the snow and ice, I crazy prepped her bike to have these studded tires, never get flats. It's a real pain in the ass. 
and that ESPN wanted to do this extreme. Everything was extreme back then. Uh, they wanted <laughs> to do this extreme mechanic, you know, episode or whatever. <laughs> and I had the best bike setup, so they wanted to do it on me. So they followed me and Sherry around this lady I worked for for the whole day. And then at the end, I was going to be on camera, and I was just mentally hung up on. They were like, what kind of problems could happen? And I was like, she could crash and break something. And they're like, I'm not going to make her crash. And I was like, well, then nothing should happen if I do my job right. And they're like, well, everybody's getting flat. How about you get a flat? And we have this like rush thing where she can't make the run if you don't fix the flat. And I was like, well, that's why I've got four extra sets of prepped wheels that would be, you know, just a few seconds to change. I can do that. And they're like, that's not exciting. And I was like, but that's the thing. Like, Everything comes from my preparation. That's why you're talking to me. And I just couldn't get over it. Finally, the owner of the bike company was like, just change the freaking flat. I was like, all right. So they have the scene where I'm changing this flat. I cut my freaking fingers on these stupid spikes and stuff. And I was so pissed. But I do the thing. And it's all from this like back view. I had like long, dumb hair for like the 90s. And I had this huge goatee. And then it came time to talk on camera. And that's the point of the story was. I locked up, man. Looking into this like black eyeball of soul-sucking death. I just couldn't think, couldn't talk. And I just for an hour and 10 minutes, it was over an hour. And we just couldn't get, I couldn't function. Um, so much of what I was worried about is credibility of, of people in the industry. You know, the other mechanics were like, they actually know, like, I'm that guy that won't let that happen. Um, and I just couldn't get that out of my head. And then finally, the owner of the, the bike company was like, I'll do it. Because uh, the ESPN was getting pissed and super impatient. He's like, I'll, I'll do it. I'll pretend to be the mechanic. Oh, no. So it's still somewhere on, on YouTube where, like, you'll see my, my back and then, like, boom, this blonde guy with no goatees doing the interview like he's the mechanic. <laughs> and that was a scar in my life where I was like, I'll never let that happen again. I'll never be too shy to get up in front of people. Half what I do at Autodesk is getting up in front of people. Um, and so many people, I'm sure you've crossed them, were like, well, I'm just not good at that. You know, like that's their excuse to not do something. It's like, well, I'm not naturally good at that. Or I was like, well, if but you want the end goal, like why don't you just figure it out, right? Um, yeah. And that makes me think about, I did this Cam Summit video thing during COVID we you know, talked to Carl Bass and had a bunch of educators on and uh, Dika. She used to be the, the basically the shop teacher at um, manufacturing professor at Cal Poly Pomona. I had her on cause I wanted to, you know, I think we, we all probably agree. Maybe not everybody, but most of us agree. It would be great to get more women in manufacturing and especially the dad of a daughter that could do freaking anything she wanted. Oh yeah. Um, and I was talking to her, like, why don't we see more women in manufacturing? And this actually goes back to my L3, you know, basically every job I've ever had. Um, she was like, she read a research paper, talked about women applying for jobs versus men applying for jobs. And, and she's like, guess how many, you know, if there's 10 requirements for a job, guess how many women feel like they have to check versus men? Before they apply, before they're like, yeah, I'll apply for that job. You want to, let's, let's play the guess it game. How many, how many requirements of 10 do you think women have to agree that? Yes, I'm qualified for that. Yes, I'm qualified for that versus men. Like nine out of 10 versus 
three or four out of ten, maybe. Yeah, so you nailed it. You nailed it with the men. <laughs> and out of like hundreds of women, uh, it was ten out of ten. Yeah, um, I can and, see that. Yeah, I, and I live that because my first job, I found they had a. a uh, Craigslist ad for a Mastercam programmer. Yeah, and I walked in and had the gall to say, "Well, I don't know Mastercam. I'm going to Mastercam class. I don't know anything of the things you asked for, but I can learn." And yeah. they were like, "All right, sure. Yeah. You know, we can't pay you yet, but we'll pay you soon when yeah. you know a little bit more." That's awesome. Yeah, that's every but job again, I've ever goes, had. Yeah, it's yeah. every job I've ever had. I was like, "No, I'm not qualified to work on a bicycle." And the owner was like, "Your bike's pretty dialed in. How did that happen?" I was like, well, I did do it. <laughs> like, <laughs> you'll be fine. Yeah, and then, that's crazy, though. Ten out of ten. That's I mean, it's just hard. Lost before like, you started. Are you a father? No. Okay. That's my challenge to everybody who's a parent. Is like, let's because I think boys do the same thing too, right? Um, I think we're just through sports or whatever the situation. I think we're more likely pressure providing for your family or whatever. I think you're more likely to just throw a Hail Mary. And I would hope as parents we're we're teaching our kids to to be more inclined to take a chance on themselves and stretch their legs and whatever. So anyways, now I'm an autodesk. Now I help uh, schools be awesome with fusion. And uh I was lose felt like I was my soul was dying because I wasn't after the first couple of years of working here where I was doing all these trade show demos, I started doing product manager type type jobs and that took me away from a machine. And a friend of mine called me one day and he was kind of in a financial bind and I had some cash, which actually is like a whole nother life story where a mentor of mine was like, always, always spend less than you make opportunities, opportunities, find people with cash basically is what he said. And, um, so I bought a BF2SS from my buddy. Um, he was kind of hurting for cash and I had some cash and I got it for a crazy deal. I got it for a good enough deal to justify it as a hobby. Um, and then I, I got a little side business. It's official little business. I basically machine stuff for machine shop friends of mine that I get a design fixtures and, you know, do some dirt bike parts for some companies that I, I'm just friends with. That's great. It, I mean, it, that, it's that's... just my, yeah, keep going. Sorry. I was going to say, just, I think that that's a lot of the people I talk to who are in software or who are only tangentially in machining now wish they had that. Like yeah. it keeps you fresh. And like uh, talking to my old teacher at college, every time we talk, he's like, man, I wish I was still more in it and learning more. And, you know, you can only do so much when you're in a, a rigid thing like a school or a, yeah. a tech job or something like that. Yeah, it's it's been good for my soul for sure. Sometimes I sign up for stuff that i'm like i i'm not saying i don't more money but it's like i'm not doing it for the money i'm doing it for the fun and the experience and i'll sign up for something that ends up kicking my ass time time wise right don't but it on. also feeds my i've got like a drug habit for tools and so i've got a, a whole three boxes of pearson stuff that in my hallway because i don't have room in my disorganized garage waiting for a, a saunders something to show up <laughs> yeah i put a rotary on it and it's awesome get exposed some neighbor kids to machining and my daughter when she was my daughter was probably 11 when she could jog the machine around and find a find a location with a probe and That's now so that she's cool. 15 and a half she wants nothing to do with it but 
Whenever she talks about being short on money, I'm like, well, there's $6,000 of parts waiting to be machined right here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pay you 20 bucks an hour. There you go. Um, well, so before yeah. we get on to yeah, listener yeah. questions, you yeah. did mention your crash story at Autodesk. Uh, Have you- thanks for bringing that up. So very proud that, yes, crash, do crash bikes and stuff more than I should. But we're talking about machine crashes. And I've, I very proudly have said for probably almost 20 years that I've never crashed a machine. That first shop I worked at working 72 hours a week, you'd think there'd be crashes all the time. There was zero, zero acceptance of people crashing machines. I go to shops where people say, ah, it's, it's part of the business. It happens. There wasn't, you know, being one of the low run volume guys, there was no accepting scrap parts and there was no accepting crash machines. And at that shop, actually, I would, I'm sorry to take another tangent, but they got a Mazak multiplex, which is still probably one of my favorite machines. Dual turret, dual spindle, super productive, badass machine. Uh, I used to ask to take the manuals home at night. I mean, that's just after working 12 hours, I would go home, ride my mountain bike, you know, my bicycle home. And then pull this huge manual out of my backpack and just read it all night, uh, trying to just. <laughs> I didn't understand half what I was reading, right? It was like Mesa Troll, you know, programming and just how the machine moved and everything. And after several months of being there, I, I will get to the crash story, but after several months of being there, they they hadn't been able to make a part with the multiplex. The the apps engineer, the Mazek apps engineer crashed the machine twice. And then the owner comes out to me and was like, do you, do you, did you learn anything with those manuals? Uh, and so I got my first crack at a lathe, the CNC lathe on a multiplex, make something Jeez. that the, the, the apps engineer was, 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 hasn't been able to do in like two months. Um, and you know, I just, I think my racing background of like, everything has to be freaking right. Careful. You kind of set yourself up to not fail. And anyway, so we made the parts didn't go as smooth as it would if I was doing them today. But um, so I think that kind of first job set me up to not accept crashes. Like I had worked for places and I had told people it's not okay to crash machines and you have to have that mindset. I think if, you know, if it's, it's acceptable to crash your car out on the street, you know, you'll crash your car. I've never been in a car accident. Apparently I think it's okay to crash my dirt bike from time to time, but um <laughs> And I ride like that, right? I ride like I know yeah, I ride hard enough or I'll crash someday. But uh, So I, I don't accept that in CNC machines. So the first crash I've ever had and the only crash I've ever had, I feel like was the absolute worst situation. It turned out to not be, but I was doing a machine tool. I used to do these uh, machinist geek meetups, we called them, in Sacramento. It was freaking awesome. The power of Instagram. Like I decided to do it on like a Friday. And on Monday I said, Hey, this coming Friday, I'm going to do this machinist geek meetup. Just let's talk about rad machining stuff. Like 45 people showed up. Um, and I was busting my ass to do this demo. And the purpose of the demo was just, I don't remember what the demo was, but the purpose of the demos were always to start a conversation with this group. And my hope with this group was, you know, build that network, right? You learn from me. I learned from you. You know, we all just be awesome together. And so I was out there setting up this demo. Oh, it's, I know exactly what it was. It was about machining some stuff and then using your probe to do more than just manually find a location, right? So 
and machine something, probe it, remachine, do do all doing some fun probing stuff. No like super dork, you know, Grimsmoe kind of stuff, but it was just rad exposing people to the beginning, like putting their toe in the in the water. And I think I think Fusion just started um you know doing like very basic you know WCS probing. So Keith Grano, the the sales guy for Selway, brings a customer in. I'm Selway trusted me enough to give me a key to the their shop. So I was in there all by myself, talking about just trust and relationships. I invested a lot in them; and they invested in me, and so their Sacramento store at the time didn't really they didn't they used it to put machines and have training and stuff. So I was in there by myself running this machine. The demo was dialed and awesome. And he brings a customer in to look at the machine to buy that I was basically after we were done with it on Friday, the customer was going to get a demo machine. And uh, so Keith is telling me, yeah, show him the probing, show him this, show him that. And uh, I was dazzling the the customer with all this rad stuff this new machine could do because he, the customer, I'm friends with him now. He just bought his stepdad or his father-in-law's machine shop that he had invested in like 20 years. So yeah, these old dinosaur things, everything was manual or like a couple um, foot alls. Yeah, a couple old foot alls. And so I'm just blowing his mind with this probe. And then I get a phone call and I had to step away. And the sales guy, remember he's a sales guy, fairly technical sales guy, but just a sales guy. Uh, the customer asked him a couple questions like, well, how does it know how long the probe is? Um and so he goes, oh, yeah, everybody yeah. didn't see the video, but I just saw you roll your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel this coming already. Yeah. So he goes over to the tool offset page, just beep, 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 beep. And then I come back and just go back to memory. And then I was going to show him like the grand finale of the of the probing thing, whatever that was. 100% rapid, because that's what I've been running it. So it's not like it was the first time. And 100% confidence, I push go. And... I did just put my finger back over on the red button and freaking probe pile drove itself into the vice or part or whatever I was doing. And I did have good reflexes because I stopped at about, I don't know, half an inch above the body of the probe, but it tried to probe the, it tried to drive the, the, the stylus all the way up through the, <laughs> through the spindle. And, and it just looked like a real chubby probe body. And, I lost my mind. Um, it was one of those, like, if, you know, my cousin's a CHP officer, you interview someone after an accident, and then you end up watching a video of the accident. It was like two completely different things. I was just like, my brain wasn't working. I clearly, my instincts are that the person making mistakes. And I was clearly like, well, I, I clearly screwed something up. And I thought about it, thought about it, thought about it, thought about it. And Keith Grant, being the the super duper sales guy he is, uh, several years kind of side thing. Several years of being the number one hot salesperson in the world. I mean, he's he sold more Matsura Mams than anybody probably ever in the world. I mean, he's, he's just super super sales guy. He he freaking was like, ah, oh, let's give Tim some time to figure that out. And he just shows him over, signs the freaking deal. <laughs> <laughs> right after, like two minutes after I, I crashed the damn thing. <laughs> And, uh, and I'm still, he comes back out, the customer left. So it's probably half an hour or something. I'm still just mouth open, staring inside the machine. Like I, my brain can't even function. And then I go back to the control 
the offset page and there's a zero in the the probe offset height. And I was like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> oh, no. And it all just clicked. I was like, oh, I'll replace it. I was at the wheel and they're like, no, that's ridiculous. You know, so they took care of it. But that's that's the crash I've had. And it still it still makes me sick to my stomach. As a mechanic, I'd never had anybody's wheel or pedal or, you know, whatever fall off. You know, maybe at the at the cost of taking some more time, right? But I think more than that, I, I've always been pretty good about setting up, you know, racing go-karts. If you take a wheel off, you put the lug nuts in the seat. So you're going to sit on them, you know, you're going to sit on them before, you know, some people put one lug nut on, somebody asks them a question and send their kid out with one lug nut and their wheel falls off. You know, I always thought about like, you never hand tighten something, you know, until you're ready to tighten it, right? So I've always had these like weird little things, and I do the same thing in machining. But that one, that one, that one hurt my heart. Uh, and I haven't crashed my my personal machine, and I've probably set myself up to crash my personal machine more than anything I've ever worked on. And it's always because it's like between dinner, you know, run out there, try to get that thing done, and then stop because my, you know, I like my daughter has a question about homework, or whatever. I drop everything, you know, hers. And I've caught myself like real damn close a few times, like breaking all the rules I ever made 20 year career. So the long winded answer to your, your question, but that, that left a freaking scar, man. It, it was, uh, and it's luckily now it's a funny story, but like literally Selway trusted me to run their machines. Like I've been put at trade shows where it's like, Hey, here's this, you know, $700,000 machine that you've never seen before. Can you run this gnarly demo <laughs> that you've never done before? Oh, and I've geez. never crashed any of them. And I've been at trade shows at, you know, two in the morning trying to finish something and hear, <laughs> you know, on the other side, of the, <laughs> on the other side of the hall. <laughs> um, oh man. Yeah, that's well, that. I do appreciate you share, sharing that yeah. then. Cause I know how, how rough that can be. Yeah. Uh, let's see. We got a couple questions for you from listeners. Chief Bub asked if you could take a full access tour of any factory in the world, what would it be and why? Man. Um, so let's start with, let's just pretend we could go back in history a little bit too. Um, I think it'd be amazing to go back and, and see some of what was happening during like the buildup for world war two. I think there was probably some magic happening there, you know, right. Um, I think also looking back in history, I read the several skunk works books. If anybody's, you know, wants to, you know, reimagine how they run a business or whatever, I think reading those skunk work books are inspiring. I would, I would cut off, you know, my other ear to, uh, to be able to go back in time and just, just linger around some of those old skunk works places to see how, dynamic and and get shit done kind of places they were uh i mean they if you look at the, the amount of time it took them to build you know the u2 or the sr71 things started going kind of south and getting political after the sr71 but that would be my dream and honestly it's not even it's not even the factory part of that i would really just love to see how they made decisions and how they trusted people and you know all that stuff um I don't have any specific, uh, I've had opportunity to go to Kern a couple of times. That would be, that's on my list. I've been to my time at Autodesk. If there's one thing that's been super rad is it's given me an opportunity to see shops that I never thought I would be able to see before. 
major tool in Indy. You know, they, I think they have a, a vertical lathe that can turn like a 42 foot diameter. Um, <laughs> I've just personally seen some insane stuff. I still probably get the most kicks out of just your little shop that actually gives a lot of shit. And, you know, like you were saying with this podcast, if you can just pick up one thing, yeah, I watch all the Saunders, you know, tours. Um, was that Alex that asked that question? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Alex Kern. Wouldn't be upset to go see, you know, some of the shops he's posting. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's super impressive, you know, stuff there. I'm embarrassed. I'm super embarrassed. CJ's a very good friend of mine. I'm super embarrassed that I haven't been down to see CJ's shop. Uh, oh, and that's a cool one too. Uh, that's a cool one. I, that's, I mean, I get videos, you know, all the time and we talk all the time, but that's, that's one I'm honestly kind of embarrassed. I haven't seen. Um, I think that, you have an excuse right now for not seeing it. Honestly, so. I should, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was down there. I did a 24 hour dirt bike race that he came up to help me with. And I was like an hour away from his shop. I should have taken a chance then. I don't have any specific shop, but I can say that the shops I usually get the most enjoyment out of are the, are the small growing shop or the, the single dude shop that's trying to figure out how to stay a single dude shop or single lady or whatever. Yeah. I hope that answers that good enough for Alex. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then Tom at Inspiration Metalworks and Newcastle Garage were asking about the Jeepster build. And so obviously nothing's going on right now, but once your rehab is done, yeah, yeah where so are you the, at? Where's the plans? All that stuff. So as with my career, I've had a little ADD and do that Jeep. So the story of the Jeep real quick is, you know, when I turned the day after I turned 15 and a half, I got my permit and my dad, the day after that, my dad took me up to the Rubicon in that Jeep. And I drove through the Rubicon Jeep Trail in that Jeep. And then it got passed around in the family, ended up in upstate New York, and I got it back and it was a rust bucket. My my brother my brother what's the term when like uh, on dating apps a you know, guy or girl posts their like high school picture when they're like forty. Uh, <laughs> oh my, catfish. <laughs> yeah, whatever that was. My that's what my brother did to me. He sent me like an eight year old picture of the Jeep and I was like, That's badass. Yeah, I'm gonna pay to have that shipped all the way to California. It showed up and it was just a rust bucket. So I decided to just pull pull the body off, do some simple stuff. And it's like literally the definition of scope creep. Originally, I was just going to put a different engine, a fuel injected engine in it and, you know, redo some stuff. And now it's got 16 inches of travel and linkage suspension. It's kind of stupid, to be honest. But um, so the direct question is, I have been, I got the okay to start standing last week. So I broke both my ankles, tore my Achilles and tore some other stuff in my ankles. I've been literally sitting on the couch, which is not, not good for my, my soul for almost two months. No, yeah, I see the bamboo behind you, which, so at least you could make stuff, which uh, is nice. Yeah. So I just got a bamboo that that's actually, I got that a couple of weeks ago and that's been good for my soul, man. Um, yeah. I've been, it's, well, we've been talking a couple hours. It's the longest in two weeks. The thing has not been printing. <laughs> um, I had an Ender 3 that I absolutely loved before. I think I've gone through like three rolls of filament in that. And I've gone through six or seven uh, in two weeks. <laughs> yeah. My, mine is sitting just off camera here. And I was the same way I got it. And I was like, oh man, 3D printing is fun again. Like I don't have to screw yeah, around totally. with it. I can print at night and not worry about it. I can go to work and not pr- worry totally, about it. Man. Yeah. 
I've, I'm doing like things I want a quick, quick kind of something during the day. And then it's good because my mind has been pretty jacked up for most of this time. And about a couple of weeks ago, I could actually have a thought for more than, you know, 10 minutes. And, um, so I got that to kind of organize my garage. My garage has become an embarrassing bomb, to be honest. It's gone through super dialed and organized. And then I kind of thrash, 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 and then like time for dinner. And I'll just go in and spend time with the family and not clean up. And, and I started racing my dirt bike. Basically, I got to a point with my Jeep. So to get back to the Jeep, I got to a point with my Jeep. I just built the roll cage. And I got, to, I don't even remember. I got to something where I was like, the mission with the Jeep was to build something that looked badass. You know, basically had a nice paint job. Could do 100 miles an hour in the desert and could go through the Rubicon with no problem. And then I could hop on the freeway, turn the air conditioning on and cruise control and go all the way to Moab. It was kind of, it's actually kind of hard to do all that. Um, yeah. Yeah. You're like, I want all of the things, I not just a few things. things. <laughs> and I'm one air Tim. I should be able to do it. Um, and so throughout its kind of build, I'll get to a point of forking the road and I'm building it by myself. So I don't have anybody to bounce ideas around off of, which helps a lot. And I'll just put it aside and I'll go do some side job in the machine or actually do my job or whatever. And then I'll, I'll get inspired and get back on it. And so something happened with the cage. I need to get back out there and figure it out. But, um, and then when I got hurt, man, the week before my surgery, I'm writing this to-do list. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to finish the Jeep. And I've actually decided, um, I'm going to get the Jeep to where I can just trailer it to the trail. And I think that'll give me enough energy to like get back on it and excited about it. And it's actually pretty close to that. Um, so then my uncle who's built like, you know, several amphibious Jeeps that could just drive across the ocean, you know, do whatever. I talked to him and my dad into coming down and help me getting this thing on the trail. So what I've been spending the last week or so doing is getting my shop organized where I'm not embarrassed to have someone come help me work in it. So that's where the Jeep's at. It's it's probably not far from being able to trailer it to the trail and shake out, you know, I might just hate the thing. I doubt it, but um, that's where the Jeep's at. It's been a awesome big, big part of my life for a while. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been watching along on Instagram for quite some time, so I'm, I'm pumped to hear it's that close. Yeah, overthinking and overdoing everything probably, but. <laughs> that's what it is it's kind of like titikin's uh, coffee machine or whatever that thing is right yeah we'll, we'll drink shots from it when we retire yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well that brings me to the last two questions i ask every guest every week first of which what did you research this week you are not constrained to one thing but what's oh, been popping up in your browser a lot good so this week um okay so just got to go ahead to start physical therapy. So I've already probably have 40 hours of research in, in recovering from torn Achilles tendon and ligaments and broken feet. There's not a lot of, not a lot of precedent for breaking both of your ankles and tendons and all that. It's all like one. So I'm trying to find like any precedent for recovering from two broken feet. Cause usually they, they assume you got one good leg to stand on. You can kind of ease into the, so in researching that a ton, getting back to the Jeep, uh, I had all the wiring all figured out. And the problem when you take forever to get a project done is like new cool shit comes. And I've decided to go to like these um, switch pros. It's basically like solid state relay switching kind of mechanisms. 
instead of having this like big busman, you know, relay system, I'm going to have two like small solid state, super easy program, you know, on off or momentary, all that stuff from your, from your phone. You can, I'll be able to start my freaking Jeep from my phone. Oh, cool. Um, so I've been researching that way too much. Researching this Gridfinity thing. If, I'm sure everybody's heard about it by now. I was probably the last person to hear about it. I saw a post from from Rob Lockwood. He's pretty good friends with him. I was like, what the hell is it? No, I saw his hashtag. He said about the hashtag. So then I researched it. and That's when I got the bamboo. There you go. Yeah. And And I've been, so I've decided I've actually come up with like rules to live by. When you sit on your ass, you can do things like that. And basically like rules to live by in my shop, right? Like for now on, I won't buy anything unless I have a place I'm going to put it. Um, I have a habit of, you know, 11 o'clock at night being like, oh, I I need that tool to do my thing on the thing. So I'm not going to buy anything unless I have a place to put it. I'm not going to keep anything unless I have a place to put it. I just kind of came up with like my, my, my rules to decide what to get rid of and not to get rid of. So now, now I'm in my shop, it's like easy to make these decisions because I'm like following life rules, right? Don't lie, don't steal, things like that. <laughs> I like that. No, I, I have, I mean, my shop is a thousand square feet and I yeah. think if I abided by those rules, I'd have about 50% of what I currently have and it would be much nicer. And I was raised a poor kid. Um, I think that changes people. I was raised a poor kid, so I paid for something. I got this piece of metal that I'll use it someday if I can remember where it is and all that stuff. So I have these instincts of just keeping things. And then the last thing is semi-excited about is configurations and fusion. I've been, uh, the Scridfinity thing is a perfect example of that, right? Like I'm organizing all my sockets. Uh, 20 years ago, I when I worked at the Jeep dealership, everybody made fun of me because I, I shadow boxed all my tools but I've added 20 years worth of tools since then. And it's kind of a mess. So uh, now I'm trying to work on configurations for like socket organizers and stuff like that. So that that's what I've been spending a decent amount of my time on. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Configurations. I've just started diving into it as well. And it's uh, another deep rabbit hole, but super cool. And, and I'm really looking forward to kind of the future of it as it yeah, gets me too. improved me on too. and all that. I think it's one of those, Oh, man, think about it. It's like a different way of thinking, right? It's like using actually using your probe and your machine more than just to locate, manually locate something. You have to like kind of break your thinking. NC programs, if you're a Fusion user, they're pretty hateable at first. And then once you like, once it matured a little bit and then you kind of matured your thinking a little bit, it's like, oh, these are actually pretty rad. I was for sure one of those people. Like I resisted going to NC programs until they turned off the option to use the legacy post. I was like, well, all right, I guess I got to figure it out now. And now I'm like such a big proponent (laughs) of it. I'm like, this is the best thing ever. Why would I ever want to use the post dialog box? I flirt with this, like do things the way I know versus do things I know they can talk about another life lesson. I mean, I, and many of the shops I went to, I was trying to like revolutionize everything they ever did. I had one of my kind of mentors, you know, wrap his arm around me and walk me out to the his shipping bay. And they used to drop off a whole UPS would drop off a whole big rig trailer. And uh and he was like, see that trailer? They drop it off every Tuesday and pick it up every Thursday. Uh we fill that thing to the roof every week. He's like 
if I let some hotshot like you change everything I do, you're going to screw up every system I have. He's like, we make lots and lots and lots of money, and I have no doubt you can make it better, but you won't be here in 10 years. And it made me really think, like, there is a flirt, you know, I think especially with the Insta, Insta community, right? It's like everybody's trying to show off and be the coolest everything and the latest and greatest. And I think there's this balance between having good dialed-in systems and being innovative and that kind of thing. So I yeah, try, no, I try to balance it's my a- life. Yeah. yeah, it's a tough line to walk because um, things are changing so rapidly, but especially with something like Fusion where it is constantly being updated and also has to adjust to such a wide swath of the yeah. industry. Yeah. I never know if I'm like, is this a feature that I will use and is geared towards me or is this a fe- feature that maybe I do need to not worry about right now? Yeah, um, I think that configuration good- seems like it's a definitely one i need to start at least working on like it might not be a, an everyday item yet but it will be i think in short order yeah don't turn to you know don't be the hammer and everything's a nail right but i think understand where it applies and that's kind of where i'm at right now is i'm actually doing like three kind of test things where like would it make sense for here versus just parameters um and that's what i'm trying to understand and explore i wasn't that good at configurations in SolidWorks. So I don't have a much of a precedent been actually wanting, you know, Kevin Schneider or Al. Al was a good configurator guy in SolidWorks. I kind of almost want like a good view of some other tool, you know, I, I logic and inventor or whatever. I'd like to see kind of some of those tools to help understand it better. Totally. So the last question I ask every guest is what are the things you're working on to be a better person, leader, employee, what have you? None of us are perfect. You know, we're all working on stuff. What are you working on? And and yours might just be trying to heal up to be the best Tim you can be. But um, if there's anything else, feel free. Yeah, that's interesting. So, you know, if you've picked up the ADD theme, right, I probably do have some legit ADD, but um I'm always trying to come up with a better way to, to hyper hyper focus is usually my thing, right? Like hyper, hyper, hyper focus and then move on to something else. And which is pretty common in that, in our world. But what happens for me personally is like, I, I, I break my life into professional, um, you know, me personal, just kind of in my own personal bubble and then family and friends. And I have a, I have a bad habit of, over focusing on one and and maybe half focusing on another and then like literally dropping off on the third and that they kind of move around like the you can have it you can have it good cheaper fast like it's kind of the same thing right and a couple years ago actually when I joined the education team um, I realized like my I don't have that much time with my daughter in my house so I'm pretty focused on on being super present in her life. Hurt my feet was a kind of a big nut kick on that one. You know, I taking her to school and stuff. I haven't been able to drive. A lot of those like best conversations happen, you know, in the car when you're, you know, on the way to school or whatever. So I'm always really focused on trying to, you know, not always. I've been lately focused on trying to be a super dad to her. Um, and just all the relationships in my life, you know, just trying to be more present. I have friends that I care a ton about and I get super into building a Jeep and it's just this like lonely little thing. I hyper-focus on work, you know, that works, works an easy one because it's 
and kind of demands it of you, right? So balance is probably the thing that I'm trying to to figure out, to be honest. I think part of the the essence of me and, and the goodness of me is like my hyper focus on things. But I think balance is the key to life. And that's what I'm trying to figure out. I think that that's a excellent reminder to everyone listening, because I know personally, I struggle with that as well. I, I'm, I, I, you know, the hyper focus resonates too much with me. I have bins of projects 80% of the way done because I've learned what I wanted at the time. And now there's something else shiny in my vision, yeah. but uh, yeah. yeah, just in general, I, I also struggle with focus. And so it's nice to hear that we're all kind of working on it together and I appreciate you sharing it. Do we have enough time to ask you the same question? What are you, what are you working on? Oh man. So business wise, we're working on moving, which has been stressful finding a place. I, I said in, either the last episode or one that comes out between yours and my, or, and now we may have found a space, which is cool. Good. And then personally, I, I, I shared, I think a handful episodes ago, I was working on getting more sleep, which I've more or less been successful with. Super I have been doing less revenge bedtime procrastination, which is good. Good for you. Yeah. Uh, but now I, th- I think balance is also something I'm always working on. You know, okay. I love my wife. I love spending time with her. Running a business with just me and a business partner takes up. You know, even when I'm not there, I'm there mentally a lot of the time. And I think yeah. disconnecting is very hard for me. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I don't mean to get too personal. You know, I'm, I'm divorced, and I think that was an issue for me was, you know, I just have this brain that just is always, you know, working on things. Uh, having fusion to be able to just sit on my couch and kind of, you know, enjoy some movie or whatever with the family and, and design stuff is a good compromise for everybody. So that's an interesting thing. So. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Well, well I appreciate Tim, your time. Yeah, man. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing your story. It, it was so much more than I anticipated like i said from your m hub thing i was like oh maybe you know he had one job before l3 and it was you know l3 was the big thing but it was so cool to hear everything i really really appreciate it yeah thanks for thanks for letting me share it it's it's weird honestly to be talking about myself i have well we've been on for over two hours that's crazy i have that boiled down to about a minute and a half (laughs) i autodesk was the first time i ever made a, a powerpoint slide and it seems like that's half of what i do now and I hope people appreciate the story. I hope they take some some good kind of life thoughts and lessons out of it. But uh, I don't know how they couldn't. And, and I appreciate that you're out there inspiring the next generation because I, I truly think that that's our biggest hurdle and the thing that we need, really need to all as a community kind of work on is not only getting people into the industry, but like how do we train them to be the best machinists in such a short amount of time because Dude. we're not getting a bunch more and we're only going to need more of them at this point. That's absolutely what my life is dedicated to about right now, work-wise. It's the reason I came to Autodesk. It's the reason I've made job changes at Autodesk. I mean, we could have a whole nother episode. It's 99% of what I write about in these CNC West articles is the future of our industry and we're doing wrong and what we should be doing. So. We don't well, need to drag this out. I have to longer, have you back on. Yeah, yeah. Sounds good, man. Well, thank you so much. Thank you to all the Patreons who make this show possible. New patrons, Jason and Will. Thank you guys for joining. Thank you all for listening. And I will be back next week.